Yeah, hello, Internet. This is uh, Ben here with Technical Difficulties. Um, we have an episode of Table Chatter, and so I'm going to be talking with uh, Kate Cargill, author of um, American Dreams, which is a uh, Unknown Armies uh, one-shot uh, book that uh, she, you know, released on uh, Drive Through uh, from through Statusphere, the community content um, method and publishing for an, an army. So I guess, uh, yeah, if you want to introduce yourself, uh, Kate. Yeah, uh, I'm Kate Cargill. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I guess uh, I'll start off by saying I first got into unknown armies, um, about three years ago when my husband introduced it to me. Um, we started off with second edition and I read it and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. This seems a little dark. It seems a little edgy. Mm-hmm. And then I started playing it and like kind of kind of fell in love with it. And then when third edition came out, like I really fell in love with it. Uh, I decided like this was the best game ever. And it's <laughs> mm-hmm. so it uh, quite a turnaround. So, yeah, this kind of me in a nutshell vis-a-vis uh, related to the, to this interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, did you were you into tabletop RPGs before that? Yes. So um, I started playing tabletop RPGs. Um, basically my sophomore late freshman year of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I played a single session of second edition AD&D, uh, which was horrible um, for, for many reasons, one of which was the sexism of the other players at the table. <laughs> um, but uh, shortly after that, um, I picked up the Sailor Moon role-playing game that was published <laughs> at the time by Big Eyes Small Mouth. There's like a whole yeah. history there I won't get into. Um, but uh, once I was working with sort of a simpler system in something that I knew more about, I, I just sort of really got into it, really decided I loved it. And that was sort of like my re- beginning of my relationship with RPGs. Uh, mm-hmm. And then a little later into early college, late high school, I got into the World of Darkness games. And then, like, I only played 3.5 for, like, not quite 10 years, but almost 10 years. <laughs> because um, that was all that was available to me uh, in terms of what people around me were playing. And, like, interestingly, the act of playing 3.5 caused me to believe that RPGs were more complicated than they were. <laughs> And I sort of yeah. forgot I was able to be a GM uh, mm. and that that was achievable for me. And then later when I moved to Boston, we started this Unknown Armies game. I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. Maybe I actually can do this. It also, it also made me rediscover how much I could love RPGs because like I have, I, I don't really dis, I don't really hate D&D at the end of the day, but it just, uh, it, it doesn't do what I want out of a game and being reintroduced to a game that did sort of have this sort of psychodramatic elements to it where you're sort of you know uh trying to get into your character's headspace a little bit like that really made me realize oh wait i actually love this this is actually my favorite thing ever Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and uh so i i sort of got back into gming from that oh nice um did you gm uh so you so there was just like a period where you just in where you were more of a player in a player role and then uh, I guess Unknown Armies put you back into that uh, GM chair. Yes. Although the first game I GM'd was actually Golden Sky Stories, um, mm. which is a game that is 
one of my other favorite role playing games and about is totally almost as totally opposite from unknown armies as you can possibly yeah. be. it's sort of like this this ghibli hills kind of uh, mm-hmm. interpersonal game about animals trying to solve people's personal problems uh, it's very <laughs> lovely um and then after that i did do like a one shot uh set in our our sort of long games universe um where i i sort of did like a, a self like a contain like an oev if you will like a contained story that's sort of set in the same universe um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that was those were kind of my two big reintroductions into GMing because I I realized oh wait the reason I can't GM something like D and D is like not only uh, is it harder because of the rules but um, it's easier for me to run a game if the the core driving narrative conflict is is interpersonal rather than sort of mm. external and like oh, I, sure. as I've as I've gotten better at it, like I can do that somewhat, but I will I will never be as good at it. It's just not as much like my skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I that I, I get that. Um I think for me, at least in my experience, I just need like my notes and at least enough time to run through everything. But um yeah, I'm kinda uh not quite I don't know. I I also have like when I whenever I run I I've done more like published scenarios and I've only like within like the last couple of years started doing more of my own thing so yeah um, um it's interesting because like what got me into publishing scenarios is that um a friend of mine was running a Call of Cthulhu one shot mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, you know, I have to find I have to go find a good scenario for this. And I'm like, oh, you use scenarios like. It, it had like never really occurred to me that that was something that people did mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, because growing up and then even more recently, like I always GM'd and played at tables where the GM was creating the scenario. And I, I yeah. just sort of saw that as normative, whether that was accurate or not. And I was talking to my friend. He's like, oh, no, I can't GM unless I have a scenario. Uh, And in a weird way, like, it kind of gave me this self-confidence to try scenario writing because I had sort of thought, like, oh, game development is not not for me because I'm not Mm -hmm. smart enough to understand mechanics. So, like, I'll never be able Mm -hmm. to do that. I just sort of passively consume them. And then... I sort of had this moment where it was like, oh, well, to me, that's the easy part. Like, I can spin up a scenario quite mm-hmm. easily. Maybe that's something I could do that would be helpful to other people. I'm not going to say sure. I'm good at it, but it's not hard. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I know, I think for me at least, um, like, just reading a lot of published scenarios at least gave me, like, you know, like, after you read a bunch of them, you kind of get, like, a sense of how to kind of, like, grok the, the formula of them. Um, or at least that's in kind of my experience, um, as I've kind of been, I think it also helps that like, uh, when I first started, uh, writing scenarios, I was doing the first time I wrote a, ever wrote a scenario was for red markets, which has like a very, um, it had, there's a very strict, like kind of formula, like, yeah. yeah, there's a strict format for how it like organizes jobs. So like, it's not, it's a pretty easy, you know, just first time. Uh, working with working yeah, the, with it the game I, from what i understand that game sort of has like a, a loop that it sort of naturally 
follows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Weirdly kind of like Ryutama in that way, a game that is totally mm-hmm. completely different for red markets again, but like, yeah. both of them are like, okay, you do this thing and then you do that thing and then you do this thing. It's, it, it sort of follows that loop and you sort of, as a, as the GM, you're sort of penciling the things that happen around those things. And that kind of mm-hmm. gives you a nice structure uh, that doesn't sort of fling you out into the, into the ether unknown. <laughs> yep. Um, the other thing that also helped me was, uh, uh, drawing like uh, NPC relationship maps, like that helps me immensely. Um, just to like have like a like flowchart of what, how everyone relates to each other and it's how all the NPCs relate to one another, which um, then helps with like writing mysteries because you know person X knows so much. You know it. You know I, again, I also read a lot of the Gumshi scenarios, which are mystery games. And, uh, you know, part of the way the flow of those games is like, you have to like go to certain people to, or go to certain locations to kind of find clues. And so with that, you can kind of, uh, again, kind of understand that like, Oh, okay. The process for like solving a mystery is essentially like kind of somewhat gating, like, I don't know, interaction, but, uh, or at least like it's not I make it sound like more on the rails than it actually is, but yeah, no, I know I know what you mean. So um I've never played a gumshoe game or really mm-hmm. sat down with one, but uh, my understanding is that gumshoe sort of follows the same core animus as like uh the Alexandrian's three clue rule and sort of what he calls node-based design, which is like sort of there's mm-hmm. different locations and each location has a thing. And the players can sort of go to them in any order, or they or they can you know follow different trails. They don't need to go to all of the locations, um, and then the sort of the story sort of hangs together based on when they go where and what they find in what order. Um, yeah, like not not quite. Um, the 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 big thing about Gumshoe is that it it was basically like designed because. Uh, Robbie Laws was getting tired of uh, people like missing spot hidden checks and and Call of Cthulhu, or and yeah. it's just like, no, I'm just gonna give you the clue. And yeah. it's more about like, on you know, yeah, like correctly, like it's about under interpreting like the information, and that's where like the actual like drama of the game is. Um, so like you know, you give them like nuggets of information that they get from spending, but like if they, you know, how they interpret that information is kind of up to them and like how they act on it is, is where the, you know, the, the freedom of the game is, um, which I really like. Yeah. No, I need to sit down with one of them one of these days. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really want to check out, uh, I definitely want to grab the PDF at some point. Mm-hmm. It looks really cool. Um, it's the first gumshoe game that has sort of a setting around it that I'm really like, yes, this looks <laughs> fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but we're actually, we're not here to talk about gumshoe. We're t- here to talk about unknown armies. Um, so you yeah. said your husband introduced you to unknown armies. Did you, uh, I guess, I don't know if you want to like give a little bit on his backgrounds. Um, how did he hear about unknown armies? Oh God. Um, if you know, I don't, no exactly but uh it's interesting because like one of the things i bonded with him over 
when we first met is we we were in like this noisy bar after a show he was in and we talked about role playing games for like three hours. Oh man. It was the first person I talked to that had played something besides D and D in years. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, hey, you heard about this game, don't rest your head. It's like, oh yes, this is someone who understands me. Uh they just mentioned a game I haven't heard of. Um, but I don't know exactly where he heard about it, but I assume probably the something awful forums. Uh oh sure. Or like some social group that is adjacent or similar to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way he talks about unknown armies is like it's like a weird visor you can sort of see the world through after you've read it. Um, it's a little like World of Darkness in that way, but it's very, it's it feels to me more like a real place than World of Darkness is, which is not a dig on World of Darkness per se. Just that's just sort of it's there's something a little more real about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I would I would definitely agree with that. In fact, I actually uh, like I uh, deeply love Known Armies. Like it's might actually be like one of it might be because i also like interacted i interacted with it like just as i was like leaving um my undergraduate uh, degree and like like the main reason why i love it is that i think it's actually like i think it's like the game that like perfectly captures how like weird the modern world is uh yeah there's actually a word that i found out a while after uh, playing Unknown Armies, which I think I found out when I was reading about uh, Roadside Picnic, a.k.a. Stalker, mm-hmm. which oh, is yeah. the word slipstream, which is like, it's a certain kind of fiction that captures mm-hmm. the way the 21st, the t- well, the 20th at the time, the 20th century feels to a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like meaningless, but like deeply resonated with me. So I sometimes describe Unknown Armies as a slipstream game. It's like sometimes I wake up and I go out into the city and I just look around me and like, like, I just think this is fucking unreal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it feels like something, something weird is happening, even though nothing weird is happening. And it's like, it's hard to capture that feeling. I also sometimes describe it as as similar to the feeling of vexion, which is like when you're standing on a platform and a train goes by you and you feel like you're moving with the train, which is like a completely mm. mundane phenomenon that makes you feel completely surreal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I know my like, God, the thing that made me like the most unknown armies thing uh, I saw, I guess this week was the Logan Paul Floyd Mayweather fight. Oh yeah, um, yeah. That's un- I don't know that much. I didn't follow that story closely, but I just read the headline. And I'm like, this is some unknown army shit. I yeah, I like saw it on like Twitch. Uh, uh, like I I saw the ads for Twitch, and then I saw like Logan Paul with his uh like Charizard card, and I'm like, and the and so I guess like yeah, the other thing like with the, unknown like armies, ritual artifact. Yeah, around his like that's gonna ah, uh, it's fucking great. <laughs> Yeah, and so, like, that's the other fun part of Unknown Armies is, like, finding, you know, trying to find or, like, create the, like, occult truth for why, you know, people are acting or doing things that kind of on their face seem ridiculous. Um, I think another part of it for me, too, is ironically history. Um, Oh, sure. I love, like, weird history. Like, one of my favorite bits of weird history is this guy... 
Spear, I think it's it's either James Murray Spear or John Murray Spear. I'd have to Google it. Who like created this mechanical Jesus? Oh like, yeah, not that was yeah. gonna bring in. Like I fucking sorry, I shouldn't drop so many f bombs. I, I no, it's it, it we it's okay to curse this podcast. Yeah, I love that that kind of shit. Or like the other thing that sometimes inspires me is like that's less weird is like some like really improbable victory or coincidence or even like sometimes a horrible crime that like everyone sort of forgot about for no reason mm. <laughs> um on on a little bit more serious of a note but yeah like it does sort of like there's there's it's sort of like an operational logic for strange things that happen if that makes mm-hmm. sense <laughs> yeah and I, and i think the other thing that's also that i, I think the other thing that also helped makes uh an army special is its central uh tenant for why strange things happen, which is that it's entirely like, I, like the way that I like to describe it is that I, I really like to describe it as like a, a horror game where like the horror is about uh, what happens when you like have t- are given too much power and yeah. like about what, how, what are you going to do in pursuit of that power? What are you going to sacrifice for it? Uh, and also like now you're in the driver's chair, like yeah. hope you don't fuck up. Uh <laughs> yeah um yeah and like uh you know i sort of this tagline for the anthology like one weird trick to achieve your dreams sort of came to me because like so much like part of what i think made me glom onto unknown armies so much was that i sort of was playing it at a time in my life when i was really heavily involved in activist work uh Mm. and i was sort of seeing in real time what that does to you (laughs) Sure. Uh, for both good and bad and sort of like the attitudes of, of, of myself and other people. Um, and like one of the things that's interesting when you approach unknown armies is like you sort of you see like how seductive the idea of like, oh, if I just follow this archetype path, I can kind of I can get the cheat codes to reality and just sort of get what I want. And like, you know, if you if you read the unknown armies books or you play for like any length of time, like you realize the horrible, costly things that you must do in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I guess I was just sort of able to see, like, in perfect clarity, this is psychology that makes that seem so, uh, so attractive because mm-hmm. like everything, life, life is sometimes Ben, life is a fucking slog. And it yes. takes you forever to get what you want. And boy, mm-hmm. howdy, if I could just, you know, pretend to be uh, an archetype or, or if I could obsession my way into hacking reality, that would be a, a nice shortcut <laughs> yep. from all of the grief. <laughs> and all the problems in the world that are caused by huge uh, sprawling systems that are like feel massive and that you can't do anything about. But, you know. They're not built against occult magic. Yeah. But, like, the act of playing it also makes you see, oh, if I do that, it's probably going to make me, maybe not, like, I don't want to say a bad person, but maybe, let's say a complicated person. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, um, like, one of the, just to, like, kind of use an example, like, one of the things that I also really loved about Unders Armies is that, like, it is the whole idea of unexplained phenomena where... Just because, like, you're just because, like, magic is real, um, and you're like a, someone who can do magic, also means that you're someone who's probably like more susceptible to like bullshit, like bullshit, 
Yes. And so there's a whole like list of phenomena that are have entirely mundane explanations for why they happen. But like yeah. because you're a, a mystical weirdo who uh gets magic power from uh you know urban exploration or whatever, like you can't, you know, you're you're too locked into that kind of viewpoint. Yes. Um, that you can't see the other, which is why, like, uh, the character of Alex Abel was always kind of like for me the most fascinating of the like main NPCs. Yeah. Um, because he's like not actually, you know, his power is that he's a normal person who's also like insanely wealthy and so he's not bound by any kind of uh mystical taboo or worldview. Yeah, yeah. My husband's a big fan of Alex Abel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to tell on myself a little bit. Um, so I started playing second edition as a player, and then we switched to third edition. And when I finally got around to GMing, I was already deep into third. Um, so I know the the canon of third edition quite well, but I know very little about the canon of second edition. I, yeah. I've, I've thought periodically about going back and like reading, you know, some of like the all timers, like uh, um, the, the, the max attack supplement or to go mm. or like maybe even uh, weep. But like, it's kind of fun to like only know about it from third edition and hear people talk about things like, oh, yeah, I remember uh, when like the sleepers did such and such. And, and like, it's almost like. It, it sort of allows you to inhabit the metafiction a little bit of being mm-hmm. like someone who is new uh, and is sort of hearing these weird whispered rumors about the whisper war. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, well, that's also uh, the fun part about it is the kind of collective unconscious like flexibility of reality, which yes. um, is oftentimes you know like how actual flex how actually flexible it is is you know kind of depends a lot in deter in whatever game you're in but gm fiat interpretation yeah but because like you know the characters don't know that and they all they're you know like it's kind of it's a game where like you know as long as the the central premise is uh you did it uh you know anything can kind of happen um as long as it has that kind of source uh you know a human a human centric source behind it which is the other reason why I think is I think Unknown Armies is uh, really cool. Yeah, I also really love sort of the the humanocentric nature of it. And like I've I'm kind of a baby. I've never really been able to handle Call of Cthulhu because like these sort of cosmic horror stories where it's like, uh, you're nothing but a mode of dust in the sea of horror. And like I, I understand the appeal of these stories. Like mm-hmm. it's, that's a very powerful concept but uh it scares me i don't like it <laughs> i mean like my actual take is i think like unknown armies is uh the human centric uh idea is actually more terrifying than yeah, the like, like uh call of cthulhu you mean nothing in the universe yeah like it's interesting because many people are agree with you uh and are probably right to do so they're like well if, if nothing matters then I'm like i'm good i just do whatever whereas yeah. unknown armies is like Oh no, I'm not good. I, I, oops, I did it. It actually matters what you do. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in our long game where this is like the, the unknown army story where, uh, one of our players, uh, an Urbanomancer tried to quote unquote fix the fact that someone was trapped in another space. 
by coming up with this sort of urbanomancy ley line, you know, mumbo jumbo nonsense ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the effect of that was to flatten the other space into our reality and release all of the demons that had inside of it. Uh, so now the city is filled with demons. <laughs> Oops. Great. Oops. Uh, we helped. Uh, <laughs> so now on top of everything else we're dealing with, we have to uh, kill a bunch of demons. So yeah, mm. that's like kind of classic unknown armies th- thinking where you cause a new problem by trying to solve the old one. Yep. So yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we, we've kind of run the gamut of like what unknown armies, I guess like means to you and how to describe it, um, which is weird occultism. Uh, the way I, I I love to describe it is like, what if like one out of every ten people featured on All Gas No Breaks was like a legit wizard? Um, I don't know what that is, but I am now intrigued. <laughs> it's a it's like a YouTube uh, channel where this guy basically like goes around. He'll like go to like uh, do like these quick little like interviews with people at like flat earth conventions or adult video awards in Vegas. Um, he did one where he, uh, interviewed a group of proud boys and like people at a border security expo, but like, you know, also he's, it's a very interesting interview because he's like very much unguarded. So he like gets them to kind of say things that like they drop their guard a lot more than um so he's like it, it's a worth it's a youtube ver- uh, channel worth checking out i think oh, um, yeah, that sounds that sounds really good um mm-hmm. and yeah I'm, I'm on the same page continue sorry yeah so but yeah like a lot of weird and it, like to where it's almost like spot the adept is like is a kind of a thing i play on it while like watching some of their videos it's like okay who in the who in the crowds the unknown army's character yeah, you can do the um, same thing with like uh, there's a Tumblr thread that goes around. It's like that one guy in your town. It's like the one mm. weirdest person who lives in your city, and like it's like yeah, that, those are adepts. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think one of them is like horseback Jesus or something like that. It's like the starting one, and then people sort of go in and add their own, like the sort of the the quirky people in their hometown. Or like I just got this book for, for this one shot I'm writing now called Backyard Visionaries that's just about like outsider art in Midwestern America. Mm-hmm. Like these people oh, who nice. build like elaborate uh folk art in their mm-hmm. yards that that sort of becomes its own attraction. But anyway. yeah. Nice. That sounds awesome. Um so yeah uh, I guess like uh you've kind of hinted at uh a little bit about like what kind of unknown armies games you've played in before you've done like uh campaigns um and stuff right yeah so i've played in a campaign and i also ran a mini campaign nice Uh, and then you know i wrote these one shots obviously Mm -hmm. Uh, and i ran another one shot that was sort of like uh i guess you could call it like a hack of maria and bill in three parts sort of glommed Mm -hmm. together into this like self-contained uh one shot that existed in my GM's universe. Wow, that was quite the sentence. Thank you for <laughs> yeah. wading through it. Um, no, I understood yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> I knew what you're talking about. Uh, some of the listeners n- might not, but... Uh... Hey, do you have at least an hour of time to Google? Good luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a recorded episode. You can just pause it. Yeah, just pause um, it. We'll still be here. Uh, and the past when you were listening to this uh yeah anyway 
Um, so yeah, what kind of, uh, I guess like, uh, how does that, how did, uh, playing and running in those kind of longer games affect the, uh, kind of design of, uh, American dreams? Um, so one thing I really liked about unknown armies was how the stress gauges, um, sort of allow you to inhabit someone's psyche, um, very quickly is maybe not quite the right word, but it compared to other games I have played, like you can sort of go through the character sheet and like you just by sort of reading like where the dots are, you kind of have a sense of like, Oh, this is what this person is like and sort of the shit that they have dealt with. Um, and then sort of the process of role playing a character in a long game, like gave me perspective on like, oh, like, uh, Lucy has this many notches in helplessness because she wasn't able to help her sister in the past. Like, those are the kind of, like, internal, like, backstories. I sort of, mm-hmm. like, I don't like to go into a game with that sort of thing necessarily, but, like, over time, I sort of like to build it out. Um, yeah. And so the process of inhabiting that character um, made me sort of realize, like, how it's good at sort of helping you have kind of like this Nordic LARP adjacent experience. Uh, And I sort of became interested in trying to create an experience that was maybe not that strong, but like at least sort of approximated it in a one shot, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, I don't know if you've run one shots, that's really hard (laughs) Um, to sort of give people uh, like what I guess what are sometimes called golden moments in Nordic LARP, like sort sure. of moments of like peak role play, um, where they mm-hmm. really feel connected to the person that they're playing. Um, and I had like a couple of one shots I was in where I got pretty close to that. And so I sort of began to think about like what would help me do that. Um, and then I read an article on, I think the now defunct, uh, VRV, blog about jailbreak um perhaps one of the most famous one shots um, oh yeah definitely the most famous unknown armies one shot maybe one of the most famous one shots period for people who are you know big enough nerds to like go outside of you know mm-hmm. the, the world's most popular role-playing game uh, I, I bought the one shots book. I still have not read it. I'm like, I'm kind of hoping I might get a chance to play some of them at Gen Con some year. So like, I haven't actually mm-hmm. read jailbreak, but I read that article about jailbreak. Uh, and I was really blown away by it. <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, it's a very fascinating scenario. Cause it's basically like, um, it's also a very ambitious one where it's, you know, like there's no NPCs. Everyone's a player character in the situation. So it's just, being in the pressure cooker. Um, I also like, like the, uh, the one shots book for uh, when he also has like one of my favorite um, RPG covers. Cause I really like that Dennis Detweiler um, art that he did for it. I think it's super evocative and uh, yeah. Um, originally I sort of had this idea in my head that I might make a bunch of one shot anthologies and they were all going to kind of be, puns like that and i don't mm-hmm. know if i have it in me to make another anthology i think i'd probably just release individual one shots mm-hmm. if i do if slash when i do more of these but i was like i too was like really struck by that cover um 
like it's a pun, but it's also visceral. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which for those who don't uh, know what we're talking about, it's a picture of uh, a guy putting his fingers to his the side of his head and there's a like laser beam shooting out the yeah. other side. Um, it's a very, it's very evocative yeah. picture <laughs> and a good summary of kind of what being in a one shot is like a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, Cause yeah. whenever I like run one shots, it's usually for me to like show the meat grinder or, you know, like here's this weird idea that I came up with yeah. uh, for this one, one shot that is going to be like amusing for me as a, a GM and hopefully fun for players, but also like, uh, you know, as, as a tendency to be a, uh, Tends, tends to be kind of rough on players often. Yeah. And like, uh, for, it was definitely an element of that for me as well. Like, um, whenever I had an idea for, un- like, you know, as, as you've mentioned with this YouTube channel, like sometimes you, you watch something or you read something, you're like, oh, that's an adapter. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an unknown armies thing. And like, whenever I had an idea like that, that I felt like was really solid or like that I had some kind of, uh, either a perspective on that might be, uh, a little different or like a little more uh firsthand or i was willing to do like how whatever amount of research in order to do that concept justice i just sort of throw it in this document called one shots and it's just a list of all of the different one shot ideas i have for unknown armies nice um and like these were sort of like the the ones that i was the most taken with um in that Mm -hmm. document so like i would say that sort of the process of creating them was a combination of like um sort of this document of ideas that I had that I thought I could, I maybe had something someone might be interested in hearing about. Um, and then the other thing was like um, trying to create sort of uh, these golden moments in unknown armies you have when your character has to make a very stressful decision mm-hmm. <laughs> that has consequences and you're not really sure what they will be. Um, but you know that they're probably not going to be quick and easy and dirty and, and well, like dirty is what they are, but like quick and easy and fun. So like it was sort of a combination of like uh, the central concept plus like uh, a choice that you have to make. And so like sort of my guiding principle was like after having experienced some of these choices in my long game was to be like, OK, for each one of these one shots, I want the players to have to make a big choice. Um and sort of deal with the fallout uh, or either if, if there's time or to, to sort of hint at the fallout of that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that's sort of, sort of uh, one of how the longer game sort of impacted me and, and reading about jailbreak um, mm-hmm. is in the plus they'll say like in the blog, they talk about spoiler alert for jailbreak, uh, how at the end of one of their sessions of jailbreak, it ends with the, um, the automata, just stealing the car and driving off into the distance and leaving everyone else behind. <laughs> I'm like, that is a killer ending. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't like, I don't know how much you can spoil jailbreak. Cause it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, all so like, like what the players decide to do with this yeah. banana situation. Yeah. And not every, you know, it's, yeah, it's just like a wild scenario that's going to be real different <laughs> depending on the the player group that uh, shows up to play. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a, a great point about uh, kind of looking at kind of character spotlight moments and um, being able to kind of like put them in a 
you know, having them imbibe, uh, not imbibe, or it, what's the word? Um, embody. Yes, that's right. Embody like a particular character um, in a particular situation and to kind of, uh, you know, connect and actor like to their kind of psychology. Um, yeah, that's a really uh, fascinating um, thing. I also um, note kind of like, and this is a thing we've talked a little bit about because uh, one of the Unknown Army is a, a game, especially like before it's third edition incarnation. It was a game where like everyone really loved it, but like they weren't, it, there was just so much in the game that like people weren't really sure what yeah. to do with it. Um, and so like, the big innovation of third, the third was just, they said like, look, it's just, you just have like one objective for the entire, like, you know, cabal, cabal, one of cabal objective at a time. And then you just like pursue it. And, you know, whatever logical consequences come out of that, you know, then you roll with it. And so like, uh, what I also noticed with all the, the, uh, three one shots in American dreams is that they all have a pretty clear, concrete goal which is a i think we've talked about on on tech diff a little bit when um i've been kind of running uh unknown armies one shots because i've read run a couple that i've written um that like having a kind of concrete goal is a really helpful thing for especially like one shots and especially in a game that's like as complicated as unknown armies is yeah, and, like, one of the things I kind of wanted to do with the one-shots is sort of to give, like, a sample of, like, here's some things you could do in an Unknown Armies game. Like, uh, sort of my feeling was is I wanted them to be sort of broad enough that if someone picked them up and they're like, well, I don't know if I really want to run this specifically, but I really like this idea and I kind of want to spin it into my own thing, that, that like, there's some some teeth there for them to sort of... This this analogy has already broken down. Uh, mm-hmm. There's sort of like some ideas there that they could sort of roll into something else. Um, but yeah, it's, it's to kind of give people like a sliver of what some objectives might be. And sort of like the the downside to that is like they are kind of reliant on pre-generated characters. Like you, yeah. you could create versions of these one-shots with unique characters, but like you would basically have to go through the objective fa- creation phase to do that. Like you'd mm-hmm. have to be like, okay, here's the, the core objective. Like what are your, how do your characters care about this? Um, and then with runoff, that's probably not even possible at all. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so that is sort of the downside, but I felt sort of okay with doing that because Marie in three parts does that, um, mm-hmm. which is the, the officially published one shot that exists for unknown armies. Um, and there was a lot of things about that one shot that I sort of liked as how it frames things, but I didn't really like the actual plot of that story very much. Uh, Mm -hmm. I sort of wanted to, to focus on what it did right and kind of expand it into sort of my own ideas about, about the game. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is also that kind of part of what a one shot's like, I guess, Raisin Detra is, is to also kind of demonstrate what the game is to people who are you know not as familiar with it um so like you know minimizing stuff on like character creation you know helps i think helps with that um as well as also like you know it's a good demonstration of just like what kind of characters you can play in unknown armies which the answer is quite a bit yeah and like one thing that i i decided like uh, as soon as I was like, yeah, I'm going to write some one shots for people for unknown armies is I'm like, I had a, a rule. I was like, there could only be uh, one 
like high powered supernatural identity per one shot. Like oh nice. Uh, like not even just like uh, an adept and an avatar. No, there could only be an adept or an avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, I was like, you could, I can either have one character who is that, which is the case in Runoff, or all of the characters can be that, but they're all the same thing. Right. Um, which is the case in Motown Showdown and Firestarter, where respectively all the characters are adepts and then all of the characters are avatars. Um, and like one thing I did really like about playtesting, especially playtesting Motown Showdown, is that, you know, if you sort of print out the Viaturge or the Urbanomancer, spell list and you say okay like all of you have access to all of these spells and then i also each character sheet in that game you have a different selection of spells from the other characters like once they once people sort of conceptualize oh we can all cast all of the spells like they'll be they'll see something one character does and they'll kind of build on it and be like oh i want to try that but like this way or be Mm -hmm. like oh like i saw that they can you know um see where a car has been can i do that too in this other context and so like that was sort of a good way to kind of help people um get into the adept mindset and sort of see like what adepts are actually capable of Uh, yeah i think go ahead sorry oh no yeah you're fine um yeah well i I think the other thing is also i don't know like i know like with random magic domains like they don't I, i feel like in in the third ed book they don't really explain it quite as much where it's just like well, I, I don't know, maybe, I, I, like, I think it, like, the idea, though, is that, like, your formula spells are just kind of guidelines to stuff that is, like, appropriate for a Viaturge, a Car Wizard, or an Urbanomancer, a City Wizard to do. Like, those are appropriate spells to use. And then, like, here, following this, uh, following your random, your magic domain, you know, your theme, you know, that with that, you can then, like, kind of improv with, like, the, uh, kind of the example spell of rule in the the first book um you can kind of like improv uh spells together which i've which i've done when um with in a one shot that we uh did that's not i don't think it's up yet but um but yeah but like the cool thing about with the depths is that there's a lot that they can do um and you know, like, but it's also like a lot of you know, also similar to unknown armies. It's a lot of power that you're giving players. Yeah. Um, that's also very dangerous. Um, yeah. And so, like, again, being able to like kind of show them how the power works, um, and you know what they can do with it, and what the limits of that are, is important. You know, for te- also like teaching them the game. Yeah, and I think you know people do tend to when they're first playing. Motown, they do tend to stick to the formulas a bit more, but like sometimes, like as as things sort of go on, they'll start to experiment a bit more, um, mm-hmm. which is which is always very cool. Um, I had um, a player. Uh, his name is Campbell. He has a YouTube channel, um, <laughs> which I can look up later. But um, sure. he played um, a character in Motown. He has played a lot of. Uh, mage the ascension actually if you're looking for his channel if you look up like top things about mage the ascension i think his video pops up so if you're listening at home and you're curious about his stuff you can you can look that way um but he played a lot of mage um and so he sort of immediately sort of grokked this idea of gutter magic uh and like immediately started doing gutter magic spells and like that's pretty unusual but it was really cool to have someone who was picking up unknown armies for the first time like sort of immediately try to do gutter magic 
Um, so yeah. ended up introducing gutter magic rules, even though like that's not necessarily like a prescribed part uh, mm-hmm. of the one shot. Um, so like that was really neat. Um, but I had other players who like really struggled with sort of the the mentality that adepts had, and and like I kind of wish I had spent a little more time. Well, I made some tweaks to the the copy that sort of integrated this, but like like really spend time with the with the players being like, you are a weird person. <laughs> who believes yeah. this thing that is very strange um I, I think taking that moment to do that really helps mm-hmm. um and i think like it also uh, the other thing that i also again like about unknown armies is that like uh it kind of you know because there are like inherent costs to like being able to do magic it also doesn't like you know you're like adepts are immensely powerful, but they're also like immensely restricted in a lot of ways. So like, yeah. it's not a, it's not necessarily like an unbalancing of, uh, characters where like one character just become, you know, one character type becomes just way more important or way more powerful than the others. Um, yeah. And I, I will say like the one thing that can be tricky is if you're GMing with an adept in the party, like you do sort of have to make sure they don't like try to karma Houdini their way around their restrictions. Sure. Um, yeah. but, there's lots of great moments of role play that happen when someone really embraces the adept mindset. And like, it's, it's, it doesn't even become like, I can't do this anymore because then I'll lose my charges. It is becomes, I won't do this because it's completely antithetical to everything I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of, one of my best moments with these games was uh, a friend of mine who is from like the, Syrac- the Syracuse area originally was uh, Trevor the the agromancer adept in runoff and like the best moments in runoff and this is why this game is kind of important to do the getting started question was the best moments in runoff happen when all of the comparatively normal pcs are like okay trevor we need to leave the town now and trevor is like no i can't leave what are you talking about i can't leave the town Yeah, the town is everything. <laughs> I'm an agrivancer. Like, I this, this is my land, and like those those become really good moments when the characters are sort of like, well, shit, we have to actually find a way to fix this problem that isn't just running away because our mm-hmm. adept refuses to leave. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's sort of ways that like I kind of meta narratively enforce that, um, like with stress checks and things like that. But I think it's it's better when the players just sort of immediately decide, yeah, this is what it's like, um, mm-hmm. rather than sort of having to kind of meta narratively be like, no, no, like your characters really actually do care about these things, which is yeah. really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess uh, let's kind of dive in. So American Dreams has three uh, one shots in it. Um, so let's kind of go through each, each one shot, uh, individually and kind of like talk about the, the writing process and the inspirations and all that. So like, I guess let's start with runoff. So how do you like kind of, what's your, what's the elevator pitch for runoff and as like a one shot scenario? Um, so runoff is about, um, a small rural town in new England, uh, and the, agromancer son of an agromancer father is going to be sacrificed in order to stop the algal blooms that are poisoning the lake uh and the players sort of have to decide how they're going to deal with that um how to prevent uh trevor the agromancer from getting sacrificed how to get the farmers to stop trying to do that (laughs) uh and like sort of how that intersects with sort of these 
the weird small town politics of a New England town um, mm-hmm. that sort of determine like who gets thrown under the bus uh, and why. Um, so that's that's sort of the the elevator pitch um, is that what looks like sort of a, a the lottery kind of situation sort of involves the players untangling um, how the supernatural interacts with the mundane uh, in yeah. the small town. As well as also like the the fact that like I mean the, the thing that I really uh, love about Runoff is that like it's also a good example of like kind of what the kind of what the false promise is in in like Unknown Army's vision of the of occultism where like yeah like they're they're very much like it's yeah it's possible to like solve this this huge uh, problem like just like that but. You know, the solution is one of the player characters has to be sacrificed yeah. by his own father, who also doesn't want to do it. But he's been kind of, you know, look, the, the the lottery picked him. So he's got to yeah. Yeah, like, fall through with the ritual. There, there is sort of like one of the possible endings is, hey, this would work. <laughs> like yeah. if if if. And uh, sometimes when people are playing the game, if they're playing Trevor and they really embrace Trevor's mindset, uh, one of my players, uh, Micah, who also sensitivity read this, was mm-hmm. like came in as Trevor, and he was like, "Yeah, just just let him do it. I think it was wrong of me to run away," <laughs> which wow. is like horrible, but like such mm-hmm. like an incredible moment of like, no, no, Trevor, no, but like yeah. you sort of understand like where an adept's coming from, and that is a way to sort of solve the problem. And like as the players sort of peel back the layers, they realize like there's there's no the only quick solution is the one that we have already rejected is, is yeah. the one that ends in Trevor's death. Uh, and one of my favorite moments when people play this module is they'll go to um, like the point of the city council nodes like that involve talking to uh, Karen, one of the city council members, or going to like the golf club where they hang out, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna find." the secret Lovecraftian dirt that's gonna that's gonna point to the city council and is gonna wrap this whole thing up in a neat little package. And it's like, <laughs> no, like ultimately the farmers are a big part of the problem. Like you can't you can't just easily pin this all on them. Like you have to find a real solution. Yeah. Uh, and that's really satisfying. Mm-hmm. It also like the other thing that I also love about it is that there's nothing really like the city council is just a normal small town city council like there's no there's no secret occult there's no cult they're not you know doing sacrifices to like an owl or something an owl idol or anything they're just like a normal city council operate that's run by rich people yeah we're like look we uh yeah like we're kind of responsible we're you know somewhat responsible for creating this problem but like uh, we're not going to cede any power to like solve it. So we're just going to throw this group that can't, you know, we'll just throw like one group under the bus yeah. instead. Yeah. Cause it's and easier like, for us to do it. That's very much based on like my real life experiences growing up in a small town. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's interesting. Cause like uh, being in politics, like it's almost easier to, take over the city council of like a big city in, in some ways in a, like a very rural town because everything is so entrenched and all those people have so much money and nobody cares <laughs> like yeah. they're they're too busy doing their own shit um and so like it's difficult for the players to sort of just kind of 
deal with the city council. Like, there's no smoking gun. Like, they're completely open about what they are because they don't have to not be. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, like, that that is one of the things I really enjoyed about writing it is, is, like, sort of trying to capture my own experiences of living in a rural area and, like, sort of this idea of, like, God, rural city councils are just... Mm-hmm. It's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, the scenario is also a good example, I guess, for, for the people who are like, at, at, like for people who are kind of new to ar- unknown armies and understanding that like, this is also not a problem that you can like use violence to solve either. Like, well, yeah. besides the, the besides the human sacrifice, but oh, yes, I guess that could be solved by violence. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I don't know. That's like different. I think yeah. it's, it's at least like, that's you know, your, your fellow player characters. Yeah. Like combat is so deadly in unknown armies yeah. that like it's, and everyone understands that it's super deadly that like, it's usually, you know, everyone will at least survive like an argument. Um, yeah. as long as it like, doesn't escalate to something that like nobody can back down from. And so like, then it's also about, you know, it's a game about coercion to game about kind of, finding the right leverage to be able to kind of uh you know push npcs because npcs uh you know the big tenet of an army is, is that uh everyone humans have free will and so yeah. you can't make them do anything so you have to find the right you have to find the right leverage to kind of persuade them to your uh way of thinking yeah and one thing i really like about coercion in unknown armies is it's like hey you know, you you have maybe good reasons, but you know this is kind of a fucked up thing to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> this isn't a nice thing that you're doing to someone, mm-hmm. um, while still like making it very much worthwhile as a tactic. Um, I I really like sort of that tension. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Unknown Armies is the only game where like it starts where most RPGs are about like center combat mechanics. Unknown Armies is the only like RPG I can ever really remember like remember that has like starts its combat chapter with okay you don't want to be in combat yeah. here's here are like six ways to de-escalate a conflict so that yeah. you you know but no then, one gets murdered and then greg is like i guess you still want to murder someone wow fucked up <laughs> yeah oh boy um which is also in the second edition uh yes yeah as well so, which basically is basically word for word copied a passage i i read initially in second edition i'm like i don't know this is kind of a lot this is a little bombastic but i I've I've so I've now come to love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and I, I have friends who will just literally copy paste that passage in other games where they want violence to be decentered. They'll just be like, don't do mm-hmm. this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also like it's and I think like another thing that helps uh players is that like once they understand that they're in the real world and they're it's not like D D where violent yeah. the, the consequences of violence are are uh, a little little lessons a bit yeah yeah uh, in 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 unknown armies versus like in D. and like i know one thing i thought about a lot playing unknown armies in our long game is like well, i don't want to deal with the cops Ugh. yeah like uh what a pain in the ass uh, at best <laughs> at but be- that's if things go well it's a pain in the ass yeah um so yeah like that that definitely the realness of the world definitely helps cement that i think mm-hmm yeah, and so the, the other thing um, also uh, that I talk about in runoff is that runoff to me kind of I feel like I guess feels like a a kind of almost like standard like RPG one shot and that like 
Um, I don't know, or I guess maybe it's also very similar to like the, and this is kind of true for all of the, for all of the, the one shots in American dreams is that they're kind of almost like half campaign starter kits, but that's also just cause like you have the pre-gens and you've got like, the other thing is that like none of the scenarios, you know, will most likely not resolve, uh, easily and they'll end up yeah. kind of messy, which is a good, you know, that's a good leeway into, you know, a starting point for a campaign and runoff's a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, I had a player playing runoff who like his solution was to like, he had the short term solution, which was to, I believe um, like sacrifice X number of cows just to, you know, keep the problem at bay. And he's like, okay, this is the short term solution, but long term, I want to create a major charge by turning uh, every, every single farm in the county into a zero waste farm. And I'm like, I just, that's just a chef's kiss moment. I'm like, Oh, yeah. it's so sad. We can't explore this in, in great yeah. depth, but like that, that's like premium adept thinking right there. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's percent it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like that's, mm-hmm. that's fairly typical. It's like you sort of in the end of these one shots, the players sort of sketch out like, Oh, here's what my player would, would be doing after this. But like, you know, we don't have time to, um actually play that out because it's too it's too in the future um Mm -hmm. this is just sort of the first milestone yeah um i think one i think fire uh fire starter definitely is kind of one where like it has kind of more of a concrete ending depending on what happens in it so i guess like what's your how would you uh describe the pitch for uh fire starter so fire starter is about four Maoists who uh, create a base in the swamps of Okefenokee, Georgia, from which they plan to start a guerrilla revolution in America. Uh, And the way that they plan to do that is by uh, embodying their members as a uh, a statuspheric archetype of the fire branch. Uh, who will then sort of change the mentality of all of the people in America to sort of embrace this idea. It's, it's called immunitizing the eschaton, which is a real word that really existed mm-hmm. before unknown armies uh, that you will probably have to Google, but just go Google it. It pays off. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of... Um, it's a campaign that pretends to be about starting a revolution, but it's actually about dealing with the kind of people involved in a revolution and the sort of decisions they have to make before that happens. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Cause the, the central conflict is that uh, the, the person who's going to be ascended into the, into the status sphere as, as the firebrand is an NPC named Frank and Frank uh, may not be the best choice for yes. this desk. So then the question for all the players is, and because they're all firebrand, so they're all, it's all possible for them to pick in. So like, yeah. do they kind of prisoner dilemma tragedy of the commons that where they like prioritize themselves to become the, uh, ascend, cause you know, ascended archetype, um, or do they like kind of band together and kind of, you know, pick someone. Um, and so like, yeah, it's just this kind of, like there's a big problem here. And like the other thing is that like the the uh ritual, they're almost done for they're almost ready to like do this ritual. So like Victor, you know, like the the end of the task is like close at hand, but like, you know, there's all these internal problems and 
in, in inside their movement. So, you know, is is like is you know the the I guess the struggle for me like in re or that I see in reading it is like can you know is it are we going to be able to like can we ignore the uh, like problems that are inherent you know it, it not inherent I guess but like that are apparent to all the player characters before you know it's too late to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, and it's it's. I don't know if it's the best of the one shots in an objective sense because I think in some ways it is the least approachable, but it is my favorite. Like when, yeah, it, I think it. I think it's my favorite too. When it runs well, like it, uh, it's it's beautiful to watch as a GM. Like mm-hmm. I've obviously I've never played it, but I love to see what people do. Um, it's a game where like in in the first round of questions you're sort of setting up the relationships between these characters and their relationship with this npc who is like as alluded to is basically a missing stare in this movement and is also at the top of this movement uh and then you sort of reveal to the players oh by the way this person that you're you're backing is a missing stare and as far as you know you might be the only person that knows this Uh, yeah what do you do (laughs) um and like that was sort of born out of my own experiences organizing and like one of the wonderful Mm -hmm. things about firestarter is like i sort of give like kind of these concrete objectives that the players have to complete in order to complete the ritual and most of the time when i ran it what would happen is that people would sort of they'd sort of gravitate towards the concrete goals because like oh these are some boxes we can check and like during the process of completing those goals they're sort of testing each other and like it's it's it became it was real in like a beautiful way where they're like can i trust you like is it like is it okay to reveal this information like are you going to stab me in the back because all of the players know that they have secrets but they don't know what those secrets are but they Mm -hmm. do know that they can tell each other about them if they want to and so like there's always kind of this moment like three-fourths of the way through the game where like slowly slowly they sort of begin to trust each other and then like that's sort of when the real conflict begins is when it's trying to decide like, okay, what happens now? Like now that we all know, what do we do? Uh, and it's great watching them sort of grapple with that question. <laughs> yeah. Which is what I love about it. Um, because it's, it, you know, the question is more about like, you know, it centers uh, beyond it, like the other thing is also like, it, it centers the the big question on the characters and like how that answer is going to be, how how those characters are going to reach that answer is going to be different in, e- in every like playthrough, I think. Which is and there's a lot of different ways in which it can they can choose to answer that, and a lot of different ways that it can go wrong for them. Which yeah. I think is uh, a good. I think it like makes it a really great one shot. Um, yeah, and like it's it's definitely channeling this idea that like when you're organizing, things can always go wrong. Um, mm-hmm. and you're always trying to recover from things going wrong, um, yeah. and sort of like what that feels like. Um, but also kind of, uh, preparing for like taking a, taking a loss too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, the other thing I really love is like when someone does have like a real moment of trust between them and another player, like it just, it's really wonderful because there's so much about the game that's that's scary to to trust someone else and like sort of tell them mm-hmm. the whole story so that when players do bond sort of in this one shot it's like a really 
a really nice moment. Like I had one game where um Dan, who is kind of like this theory head guy, who's from he's like a, a uh, a graduate from New Jersey who sort of came down south to be an adjunct professor. Um, he's sort of talking to Destiny, who is um, a former sex worker. I guess I guess a stri- she's a stripper. She's not actually a sex worker. My apologies. Um, they sort of have this moment where he's like, oh, your, your name is Destiny. Like, it's obviously you. And she's like, oh, that's just like a name that I chose for myself. Like, that's not really like my name. And he's like... D- did you choose that name or did the name choose you? And like, I'm not really doing it justice, obviously, but like it became this really powerful moment where, um, that reflected my own experience of like, sometimes someone who is a good leader does not want to be a leader. And Mm -hmm. like, you sort of have to, to ask them, like, is there like, you sort of have to tell them like, you're no, it really should be you. (laughs) Um, because you're the one we trust. Uh, and that's, that was a really fun moment. Um, there's lots of times when Destiny doesn't become the Avatar too. I think it happened like about half the time when I ran it. Um, but uh, it is nice when when that moment happens. Uh, if that mm-hmm. is the way that the players choose to go. Yeah. Um, and I think what's also very uh, this is also one that uh, Fire Star also takes place in a very interesting uh, setting in Southeast Georgia. So if you can, uh, yes. So yeah, could you talk um, about that a bit? When I was so this game is kind of interesting in that um the the consultant I credit uh Jason Johns is a big unknown armies fan and like he kind of like put me up to writing this um mm-hmm. because I don't know how much you are uh, up on weird leftist uh I've gotten more and more over the past like weird this was like this was a big year where everyone got radicalized yeah. uh to um, both left and right so, so. I <laughs> Uh, 2017 2018 there was a group of maoists in florida who wanted to Mm -hmm. create to do literally this in the everglades and my friend jason was like oh you should write a game about this uh and i was like i don't like i'm from the north i am very much a northern new englander and i'm like i don't know if i can write this like florida is a culturally complicated place and it would take it and like i don't know if it's a place i really sort of relate to on any level and i like i sort of i sort of thought about it for a while uh because i did think it had a lot of strengths as a concept uh and i eventually settled on southeast georgia because it was a place that was really interesting to me it was a place i'd already visited though admittedly when i was very young like i went to okifinoki and like it it was really struck like that place really stood with me over the years uh and jason is also from georgia he's from not that part of Mm -hmm. From um, northwestern Georgia near Atlanta, um, but he knew uh, way more about it than me. So, like, I sort of worked with him on a lot of the details of the setting while also doing, like, you know, a lot of research. Um, one of the big pieces of research was reading about um, resistance during the Civil War mm-hmm. um, because that's a as it developed, it sort of my interest in southern resistance during the civil war sort of became like a mirror for like this modern resistance and like how i was contextualizing like oh what would it look like for an actual resistance like this to happen and and, and uh just to just to like clarify for the the people who don't know these are when you're talking about southern resistance you're talking about people who are yes. anti-slavery and yes anti-slavery <laughs> yeah uh, people i i i'm including both um uh 
you know, a, a slave, uh, the, the, the escaped enslaved, um, mm-hmm. who led the resistance, people like Harriet Tubman, uh, and also, uh, white working class resistance. So, mm-hmm. uh, in the civil war, you have, um, uh, up to at the, at the height of when this was happening, I believe it was like 80% or more of, uh, white, uh, conscripted soldiers, uh, defected. Uh, oh, nice. Did not show up. So, like, mm-hmm. there were more people who chose not to fight in the Civil War than people who were sort of actively identifying with the Confederates. This is this this is coming from um, David Williams' book, uh, "Poor Man in a Rich Folks War." And like, there's it, this is obviously very complicated. Like, it's not mm-hmm. all it's it's not all you know people doing the right thing and being good people. Like some yeah. of that was very selfishly motivated. Like obviously people don't like dying in wars. I know hot take. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, some of it was just that like, they didn't have any food. They were stealing all of their food to give to the Confederate soldiers and um, people were sick of it. Um, and you also, but you also had these groups of what are called layout gangs, which were uh, white draft dodgers who hassled um, people trying to conscript white people. Um, and like mm-hmm. sort of prevented further conscription. So like it was an it, it's an interesting and complicated subject. Yeah. Um and it sort of uh had a strong influence on me and like how I sort of wanted to frame this conflict as sort of echoing um this sort of forgotten history of southern resistance, this sort of tendency to frame the civil war as being about, oh, the good white guys from the north came in and they helped everyone, yeah. and like how problematic I think that framing, yeah. um, both from like the racial side of like not properly crediting the enslaved as being you know central actors in their own liberation, and also like uh, ignoring the fact that there were lots of white people who also chose not to fight, and that. I think sort of this this framing of like North good guys kind of in a weird way feeds into thinking of like it, it sort of feeds into this weird racial animus among yeah. Northerners in some ways. Um, and like I don't want to speak too much about this because like I don't want to speak for people. But this is sort of like what came out of my conversations with with my friend Jason. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, his own feelings about the South. And I sort of wanted a game that kind of um echoed that history um through this modern leftist lens and sort of tried to reimagine what that might be like um in sort of a in sort of this this unknown armies framework i don't know there's a lot mm-hmm. of feelings jumbled up in here i apologize if i'm i'm not no well, like that's what makes it a fascinating uh piece of work like to be when yeah. I, I read it um i also like southern gothic literature too yeah, so yeah. which is very southern gothic yeah yeah that there's definitely uh, a lot of that mixed in which i i credit most of that to to jason talking about like his own experiences in the south mm. and like how that how much that impacted me um but yeah like one of the things i like about writing games instead of writing books is like you can ask questions without necessarily having answers for them mm-hmm. um and this is definitely an area where i have I love reading about it and it's really interesting to me and it makes me ask a lot of questions. I don't know if I have answers for. Sure. Uh, and I think those are questions worth thinking about. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's sort of why I, one of the reasons that I wrote it about this part of the South instead of about Florida, which is interesting in its own way, but like not on the specific topic that I was already thinking about a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I don't know. Um, th- this might sound uh, like I'm I'm being mean, but I, I don't mean it to intend it to be that way. But like the the thing that's nice about like I guess RPGs is that like it they kind of allow you to you as like the scenario writer, or the GM, the kind of the main. Um, set designer behind the scenes is that it, it'll, it allows you kind of to uh, avoid having to answer those questions and then to like put that responsibility in the players. And I'm not saying that as like a diss to a GM, but yeah, no, like part of, yeah, but like part of what, you know, the other thing about RPGs is that like, you're not doing it by yourself. The players are, yeah. are the ones who are, you know, the movers and shakers in the game and you need to uh, kind of give them that power. And that means like, you know, in part putting them with in putting them in these kind of like, you know, what, what, you know, a big problem, I guess like a big issue with unknown armies in terms of like people uh, who maybe don't, uh, who, for whom it is not their cup of tea is that it like asks really big questions and puts them in very uncomfortable positions um, to, yeah. for players to answer those questions. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, because of that, it's not a game for everyone, and that's that's totally fine. Like, yeah, boy, I, is it not? Yeah, excuse me. Uh, I I think it's fine if <laughs> if it, you know, you're you see this and you're like, not for me, thanks. Um, but like, one of the things I like about that that the players are invested with so much power is that you can allow them to think about things without necessarily forcing them to like give up an opinion. Like they're sort right. of playing through the process of these questions. Um, and you know they they are coming up with answers in the sense that their 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 characters decide to do something and that something leads to the conclusion of the adventure but you know sometimes you walk away from a one shot and you're like i wish i had done this instead and maybe mm-hmm. things would have turned out different and like i kind of like that too in a way um right so yeah i think like one of firestarter's strengths is that it it sort of this, has this big stew of like these things that i can't stop thinking about about uh my own complicity, my own complicitness as a young person in the North in sort of just kind of uncritically buying this narrative that like, Oh, we are, we, the North are the good guys mm-hmm. and have done nothing wrong. And like yeah. how wrong that turned out to be um, and how oversimplified it was and like sort of researching and like educating myself on what, what this conflict was really like and, and sort of trying to think about, like what that means for the future and not really knowing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's I I I really enjoyed the process of writing it. I hope other people enjoy playing it. <laughs> um yeah. cuz there's a lot of stuff mixed in there. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's the one that I think is probably the most well, I mean like you're literally playing Maoists, so yeah. uh, uh um I I have my own complicated feelings about Yeah, I I um well I'm guess like moving towards left. I don't really know all the differences between the different um communist strains um you know between like Trotsky's or uh Marxist Leninists or Maoist. Um the only thing I really know about Maoists is that they hate landlords, which is uh, something we, I think we can all get behind. Yeah, we can um, all get behind that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get into this too much because, like, you could talk about this all day and a lot oh, of it yeah. is, like, you're better off, you know, reading a little bit about it on your own. But, like, the, the history of Maoism in America. Um, oh, what you mentioned in the, yeah, what you mentioned in the scenario, too, with the yeah. coin. Um, God, it's it's like it's it's difficult for me to even sort of 
break this down, especially with the amount of uh, of information I have and the way in which it's pre- presented to me. But like, it's everything from like you know many many of the Black Panthers were influenced by Maoism, mm-hmm. uh, down to like um, part of what fractured the left among white people, like the white left, most the mostly white left, uh, like college student leftists, was sort of the schism between like Maoist thinking and Marxist Leninist thinking and and social democratic thinking and like what was achievable and how we should do it, and it, it turned into yeah. like something. And I guess I would describe as intensely ugly, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and sort of destroyed the left. Um, so like, there's a lot of layers there. Uh, if you're interested, read read some books. Um, yeah, it's but, fascinating uh, stuff. And yeah, but I I think that you know the bits of Maoism that are included here are reflective of what Maoism looks like today among people I know in DSA in the United States. So like in mm-hmm. that specific sphere, I feel I feel I'm pretty confident uh, on what it looks like. Um, but yeah, they're definitely like. These are not necessarily the type of people you will meet at any given leftist meeting. Like they're sort of the extreme end of people, yeah. Because the, you have to be if you think you can fight a war in the swamps of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And that is not a. Uh, I know, like a thing that I, I've uh, I see a lot, and because I listen to a lot of podcasts by leftists talking about politics and news from a, a leftist perspective, is that like that's the one thing that the left doesn't really have. Like there isn't really a much of a like organized somewhat kind of militant um, leftism really in, in the United States at this point, um, which kind of makes it a, at least from the, the perspective of a lot, like a lot of the guys and it wasn't like in commenting about it, like makes it kind of hard from a, you know, like being able to organize and kind of, and, you know, affect large scale change, which, you know, not necessarily saying it's impossible, but yeah, it's part something of, that's missing. Yeah, and part of that has to do with the the really violent history of leftist repression in the United States. Oh yeah, uh, that that's also part of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jakarta method and yeah, all that stuff, which is uh, a subject I will very lightly touch in in the uh, the one shot I'm writing for this game jam called Yo Jambo. Oh, nice. Evokes the Ludlow massacre a little bit, but not mm-hmm. in like a big way. Not not like Firestarter evokes its own leftist themes by any stretch. It's more of a background sure. element. Um, but yeah, um, yeah that that got into the weeds, which is fine. It's Firestarter. You're, yeah. If you play Firestarter, you're gonna get into the weeds a little bit. Like that's both its strength and also its. Eh, maybe I don't want to run this weakness. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, which yeah. I guess then uh, brings us to Motown Showdown, which I think is like. Probably the most complicated, or at least in my view, of the the three scenarios, because not in the sense, and that there's a lot of moving parts, and that there's you know two cabals that could be operated by player characters, and um, yes, it was. It has a little bit more upfront stuff in it. Yeah, it's definitely was the most challenging to write of the three. Um, partly because 2020 was like a tough year for me for personal reasons. Uh, partly because I had to do a lot of research to do this game justice, especially because I've never been to Detroit and it was really yeah. important to me that like, I not fuck this up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, partly because there is so many moving parts to it because when you're playing an all adept cabal that sort of has this grand vision, like um, you have to think about how each of the cabals is trying to do that. Um and uh, and what they're doing. And to briefly explain it, um, in Motown Showdown, you play of one one of two cabals, either a cabal of city wizards or a banner aka or banner or a cabal of car wizards, also known as viaturges. 
and they want to make sort of a compact with this alternate dimension um, that if they give up one of the people in their cabal, the city itself will help them either bring a train renaissance to Detroit or bring back sort of this halcyon day of the American automobile, but this time run by Detroiters instead of by like these these large auto companies. Uh, and sort of everything proceeds from which cabal you pick uh, and, and how motivated they are to accomplish that. Um, mm -hmm. And part of what, uh, part of the core conflict of Motown Showdown is you know from like the beginning of the adventure that someone is going to have to become this scion and uh, oh, am I, am I making a lot of noise or? Uh, the, your AC was going on. Okay, sorry. Uh, you sort of have to like decide who is going to be given up to this other space indefinitely um, and maybe lose themselves in that process in order to make this goal. And it sort of asks, like, what are you, what are you, who is willing to do that and why? <laughs> uh, and what are you willing to do to make that happen? Um, mm hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's. Uh, I think this is also one where, like, I guess, um, how do you imagine? How, how is it like? Do you uh, run with the cabals? Do you usually have like one? Um, do you like do kind of a uh, bring me the head of comp to Saint Germain, where everyone's playing two characters at the same time? You know, one um, from each cabal. Do you just have like everyone picks from one cabal, or like everyone, do like a yeah. split the table in half, where like. Half the people are Urbanomancers and the other half are Viaturges. Um, I just, you you pick one Cabal or the other at the top of the game and then you just run it as that Cabal. So, like, you mm -hmm. don't, the players can't, you don't play, like, both Cabals um, or pick and choose between them. Like, you just, you, you just run the entire adventure from one side or the other. Which apparently is something I should update the one-shot to make clear. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, I mean... Uh, if you wanted to run it that way, that would be really cool. But God, I can't imagine trying to run that. <laughs> I, I could kind of imagine like if you somehow got like a like an eight player kind of competitive one shot kind of thing, I think would be yeah. super fascinating. But that's also really hard to organize. Yeah, it, it's it was interesting because like I was writing this as the the Comte de Saint Germain was sort of uh, coming out slash being run. Mm -hmm. And I sort of had this moment, I'm like, oh, I wonder if you could run this game like that. And, um, uh, like, if, if you want to do that, I'm not, I'm not here to discourage you. But um, I will say that the plot lines are pretty um, cohesively similar. So if you ran one after the other, for example, you might find it a little samey. Um, because if you look at sort of the outline of the adventure, it's sort of different until you get to the third scene and then they sort of yeah. merge together um, and they kind of follow a similar um, mm -hmm. path. Um, the sure. other thing about this game is like, it's very much oriented around the players deciding whether they care more about doing their own objective in as little time as possible and creating this compact with this other space, or if they care more about taking pot shots at the other group. And my experience mm -hmm. was it's basically always the first thing. Um, okay, sure. And there's another game I could have written that was about the conflict between them, and that's probably a great game, but uh, I, I'd already spent two years on it, almost. A year yeah. and a half, and I was like, I can't. I can't do. I can't re completely rewrite this game again. Mm -hmm. um, so it ends up being more about exploring uh, the, con the, the sort of feeling of like what you're willing to to give to make this happen um, yeah and what you're willing to risk and also like what kind of concessions you're going to make to yes. this vision because yes. 
You can also because there's an easy way out if you make yeah. a deal with an with uh, a uh, emissary of of the big Detroit big auto uh, yes. companies who will you know kind of solve the problem for you, but you know in the in the process you compromise your vision for what Detroit's gonna what the you know your future uh, vision of Detroit's gonna look like. Yeah, and like that was very much based on like my own experiences organizing mm-hmm. it's it's like eventually you just become so exhausted you know <laughs> sure. it, start, it, it looks yeah. it's it's legitimately tempting um to just say oh, maybe you know, maybe we can sell it a little bit <laughs> if it gets the mm-hmm. thing done um and sort of you know most players won't choose to sort of take that path but it's interesting to see them respond to and grapple with that question because of course the price in this case of, of saying no is that you're throwing one of your comrades under the bus. Yeah. Um, and also you know, like the, yeah. the player characters are all people in precarious situations. And like yeah. one of the, the deals is, is like, and that's, that's something like I, 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 you know, in real life, I kind of have like a necessarily like a hard time, you know, blaming people for taking it when, you know, they're between a rock and a hard place like that. Um, you know, like, yeah, I, I mean, I know personally, if someone was like, oh, I'll give you a job and you will no longer be starving anymore. It's like, wow, that sounds really great. Uh, <laughs> that's a hard thing to say no to. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one reason I have sort of the startup question set up to especially with the Viaturges, where it's like, what's the worst night you ever spent in your car? Like that really asks them to sort of think about what it means to be someone who is always on the move and like who has lost so much and like, like what it means to say no to a deal like that, uh, that could mm-hmm. change everything for you. Um, actually, yeah. I really like the character of Jahid in particular because, um, like he has, like his life is in such a bad place that when that happens, like it's so hard to like not want him to be okay. <laughs> Got that I was muted. Um, yeah, no, like that's great. Um, the other thing that all, I think that also helps when like being able to focus that you know avoid taking pot shots at the other cabal is that they are not like they just have a different vision for what a new a, you know a revitalized Detroit looks like. Um, yeah. That is still like you know better than what it is at the start of the game. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it's just like a different vision. Yeah. And it's excluding, you know, a core part of the Viaturge identity yeah. or the Urbanomancer identity. Yeah. Like part of the, the needle I was really trying to thread is like, you have two people who are inherently likable in a lot of ways, whose vision is inherently, you know, trying to be at least trying and arguably succeeding at being liberatory but those two visions cannot exist like together. It's impossible. Yeah. You, you can either have a Detroit that's built around auto culture, or you can have a Detroit that's built around trains. You cannot have both. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. Like the, the streetscape can't be happily devoted to a car free future and also be about cars. <laughs> right. Um, and like in the, in the process of playtesting, like I did have like one cabal, that came up with like a satisfying way out of it. But like when that happens, when the cabal, when the cabal sort of come together, it's, it's, 
it's really bittersweet because that's a situation in which this room has extracted so much from them already through like the the deaths or loss of the other cabal mates that like the players feel like they have nothing to lose so it's not it's not sort of the happy ending that it might be because it's often comes at the price of like their like their lives or like the 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 ability of them to accomplish what they want like if mm-hmm. that makes sense I, I feel oh like yeah losing my words a bit here but i mean like that's the whole struggle of the game like uh, of unknown armies is you know what are you going to sacrifice to get the the thing that you want and to change the world in the way that you uh want to yeah yeah and like a lot of times when i'm running it and like when i wrote it i like i just like there's a part of me that's very nicey nice that wants like everyone to get what they want and like so i'm writing this and i'm like oh, this is so unfair like this is so unfair and it's like yeah that's the point like um like do from working in uh for a cause and being willing to give anything to it and from you know reading about that like it's really unfair <laughs> uh you mm-hmm. asked to give away stuff you should never be asked to give away <laughs> right and you know potentially even laying down your life for the yeah for the cause too yeah um, which uh not something which is not something a lot of people are ready to do uh yeah uh, one of my players who playtested this had like a really great moment where she talked about how she was playing um, Darius and she talked about how she realized like one reason that she was willing to be the scion or Darius was willing to be the scion is because it was more important to him to be seen as being true to the city uh, and to mm. live on that way in people's minds than it was to um to to necessarily come out of it alive and like that kind of struck me as someone who spends time around people really devoted to their causes is like you do sort of become like when the cause becomes everything to you like the most horrible thing imaginable is to is to feel like you've betrayed it in a way right um so yeah Mm -hmm. um so i guess then uh about location um so i guess like why did why did you uh how did you like come to pick detroit specifically i mean obviously like detroit you even though like even for i think like most americans who don't know a lot about detroit like do have kind of a weird association that it's kind of a you know hollowed specter of you know what the what made this country great kind of thing um but yeah could you like go into that yeah so um I had the idea for Motown Showdown for a while. Like, I would say at least uh, a year, two years before I started writing it. And it sort of initially sat in my head as the idea of people on, like, the Facebook group New New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Oriented Teens who, like, really hate the automobile industry, who really just inherently hate cars, and, like, how that sort of contraposted with uh contraposed with um well i guess what i would call car guys like these these people i saw uh growing up and, and sort of around who um either like you know people who are really into vintage vintage cars is, is obviously a thing um and like people who work in the automobile industry and are like one of the sort of the last vestiges of of unionism in this country which is sort of like you know as as leftists we are supposed to support unionism and and like i would mostly agree with that statement um and then also sort of like um tuner culture uh which is actually like 
surprisingly like anti-authoritarian and like kind of DIY. Like it's it's not really sort of it's not something that like necessarily a bunch of like super richy riches do. I mean that can happen obviously, but like a lot of tuner culture is about like your dedication to like making your car yours and like um sort of existing in the streetscape outside of the law. <laughs> um and there's something sort of to me, like inher- inherently kind of lovable about that, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though like I'm not necessarily like a pro car person. Um, and like I sort of sat with that idea and I kind of bandied about where I wanted it to take place. And I sort of eventually settled on the idea that it should maybe take place in Detroit because of Detroit's um, historic connection to the automobile industry and its sort of historic importance that's been kind of eroded away. Yeah. Um, and like going through that process, I realized if I set this in Detroit, like I really, I I can't fuck around. Like sure. that is a place that means something to people. Like that is a place where that is mostly inhabited by marginalized people. And like the way that that city has been, um, governed, um, explicitly has had to do with sort of. Um, the fortunes in history of why it's marginalized, like how it became that way, like the ways in which like that's that's sort of um, a symbol of cultural resistance and the way that's sort of a symbol of like uh, white flight and redlining and like all of these other really ugly things that happen yeah. in cities that sort of northerners want to pretend didn't happen uh, and like aren't part of like our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once I sort of started thinking about that, I'm like, oh shit, like I kind of have to set this in Detroit now. Um, and like, if I set this in Detroit, I have to talk about this. Like I can't set this game in Detroit and not talk about how mixed up these discussions about the urban landscape are in, in racism and in mm-hmm. mining. Uh, but I also don't want to make this a game that's like, you know, what they call trauma porn, which is like sort of this idea sure. of like, it's kind of gross. Like you just sort of have people suffer in your game to like sort of um, make a point or like uh, it, it feels a little exploitative. Um, right. I don't really want to do that either. Uh, so like coming out of this research, like I ended up deciding to set it in Detroit because it, it's, it's sort of emblematic of this conflict and the ways in which this conflict is complicated and messy and wrapped up in like um, these sort of, like like these sort of racist policies that have happened and continue to happen. And then like the mm-hmm. other piece of it is like Detroit is just a really important city to America. And if like, oh, once yeah. you start doing research about Detroit, you realize like, Oh, every, every regressive thing that has ever happened in a city, they did it here first. Oh uh, re- yeah. And sure. like, uh, it's like a historically a keystone of American industry and like culture like it's one of the most important places to the music of America. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of music people don't necessarily think of as being from there. Like techno music started in Detroit and like most people like don't know or even think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, it used to be like the center of American city culture. Like they called it the Paris of the West. So like the more I researched Detroit, the more I really felt like I sort of had to set it there. Mm-hmm. even though it was difficult and complicated to do so. <laughs> Right. Um, does that and I think that's, question? yeah, that does answer my question. And I think it also like, cause it, again, I, as I kind of said a little before, like, I think most Americans, you know, even like at a passing understand Detroit as this kind of hollowed out, uh, ruin of, you know, that's kind of emblematic of America as a whole and a 
you know, it, it's just kind of like avatar for, you know, the false promises and failures of America. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. like, it becomes kind of, but like also, you know, you want to be specific about the city itself and not to do the, the thing that every horror movie does, which is just use this, you, you just use it as like a, a source of ruins and cheap shooting yeah. locations. Yeah, man, isn't isn't things so bad in this place that I don't live in and have? No yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like uh, one thing, like I I was you know really happy about researching Detroit is like I sort of uh, you know one thing I really hated growing up in rural New England is like this this um, this tendency for people to think of like economically depressed areas is like, Oh, that place is just a dump and nobody lives there and nothing mm-hmm. there of value exists. And like how right. pissed off that made me. Uh, and like people, Detroiters have to deal with this all the time. Like people just erasing everything good, good about their city and sort of holding up this idea like, Oh, it's just a dump and no one wants to live there. And I really mm-hmm. wanted to push back against that. Um, and part of that was reading um, the Detroit anthology uh, that's published by Belt Publishing, and that's just a series of people's first-person perspectives about Detroit, and it was really helpful for sort of contextualizing that from the perspective of people that actually live in Detroit, and also like learning like what about this city is so lovable. Um, like mm-hmm. it made me really want to go to Detroit, um, and like how much about it is really beautiful, um, and like it's it's kind of an amazing place that it's it's neglect is more an indictment of the people trying to exploit it than anything about Detroit, which is an amazing mm-hmm. place that continues to turn out like some of the greatest art in America, despite yeah like consistently having disinvestment. So like there's a scene in Eastern market, which is like the biggest market in the United States even now. And like, it's where people come from all over to sell like, um, produce and, and all manner of, of things and um you know central station is still sort of abandoned at the time of that the game takes place but it's also like a beautiful place and like even some of the things about it that are ruined like some of the elaborate like quote-unquote ruin like the elaborate graffiti are like kind of what makes it beautiful mm-hmm. um yeah and and I, I just kind of wanted to capture like how much of that of beautiful and like part of this urban fabric of America. Um, so there is an element of it that's just sort of the players who might never have been to Detroit sort of exploring this place and like why people care about it and like learning to like why you should care about places that uh, other people have sort of neglected and yeah. deemed unworthy when that's not actually true. Mm-hmm. And it's also, um, I think, like it also, uh, we. So we also do a, a comics podcast and we talked about uh, Alan Moore and like a big thing that Alan Moore talks about is like the history of place and location yeah. and how like important it is to like, you know, not only from a, a uh, kind of a realism in terms of writing your thing, but a, of grounding a, uh, a, a story in a, in a actual location that has history. And also like, there's an, a whole occult aspect to that and, you know, yeah. symbolic aspect to that as well. Real that, life you know, unknown army's character Alan Moore. Yeah, real life unknown army's character Alan Moore, who uh, learned magic when he was in his forties. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, um, but yeah, like I, I definitely understand that. Uh, I I kind of feel the same way. Uh, St. Louis has always been like a big city in in my kind of like personal life because it's where my dad grew up and it's where I you know visited a lot because my grandma lived there. Um, and I think it 
I think I, I need to like dive into the actual, like more of the history of St. Louis itself, but I think it's also kind of similar in some ways to like Detroit is this kind of, um, you know, historic, you know, historic city of great import. That's kind of been forgotten by, uh, like modern American culture a little bit. It's really interesting to me that you actually mentioned St. Louis because, um, one of the, someone who, uh, was a big, uh, inspiration for, for me in some ways, like maybe not like in a direct way, but in kind of like a subconscious way is uh, a friend of mine, um, Lee Nave, who is from St. Louis and, and uh, ran for city council here in Boston. And I, I sort of helped mm-hmm. him out as a volunteer with his campaign a little bit uh, and sort of listening to him talk about growing up in St. Louis um, and like both how different that was, um, but also like the few things that did remind me of sort of growing up in areas that other people kind of thought of as, as sort of hollowed out. Uh, yeah. And also like, you know, he both taught me but also like encouraged me to learn i guess i would say even more so like about like redlining and and things like that Mm -hmm. and like how people in those communities were disenfranchised by that um so like yeah st louis is definitely a place like that then my sensitivity reader um sean demori one of the most uh he's such an he's so interesting and like uh, always really always says things that make me think for like an hour later. <laughs> um, he's also from Kansas City, uh, which is obviously not St. Louis, but is also in Missouri and has kind of a similar cultural milieu. Yeah, to St. Louis. Um, so like that was definitely kind of uh, in my mind as well when I was writing this. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's cool that you bring up St. Louis. Um, actually, yeah. another thing that was a big inspiration on this was. Um, the Facebook group uh, Preservationist Memes for Tour-Oriented Teens, um, Mm -hmm. whose main admin is from Detroit. And those two cities come up a lot in that group because Mm -hmm. um, so much preservation there is uh, centered around marginalized communities compared to other places in the United States. Right. Um, And it's sort of like there's it's sort of an active terrain where people are saying, hey, like these sites are culturally important. Uh, just even if they're not culturally important to like you as like some outside investor and like they should, they should mm-hmm. be preserved. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's cool that you bring that up. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of places like that are also very similar like that in America yes. um, as the, you know, you know, demanuf- like the industrialization of, large parts of the country and um a lot of a lot of the country has been kind of hollowed out and yeah uh, it's kind of rusting and then you know and the question about what we do about that is you know an important one for deciding what we what kind of future we want to live in uh you know coming up uh yeah and if if that's a subject that interests you vis-a-vis unknown armies um i haven't really sat down with it and read it cover to cover but chris light's heroin highway it's sort of about that mm-hmm. from uh, a perspective that's a little more familiar to me intrinsically. Like it takes place in rural Massachusetts and it's about the the heroin epidemic. And like as someone from northern New England, like you sort of can't ignore that. It's like a big sure. part of sort of the, the fabric of what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's it. Great, great conversation about like the importance of place and uh, yeah, kind of yeah. oh, okay. both and about America. Say, but 
what I was going to say, it's a bit more relevant. And like, feel free to like, I'm sure you'll cut some stuff out because I rambled quite a bit. But like, uh, when I'm writing Unknown Armies adventures, like for me, like the sense of place is like a huge part of it. Like one mm-hmm. thing that I think really makes Unknown Armies shine is if you can pick a location and sort of find all, all of the weird history about that place. Oh, yeah. Enter it in your game. And like that makes it come alive in a really strong way when you're, mm-hmm. when you're doing scenarios for this game. Um, like all of my favorite Unknown Armies content um, is, is just like feels really of a place. Uh, this weird thing could not happen in anywhere, anywhere but this specific location. So mm-hmm. that was definitely like a big, it's definitely a big thing. Once I decided this game was in Detroit, like I really had to sort of absorb as much as I could to really kind of understand as well as I could not living there, like what it's like from like a street perspective um, mm-hmm. for people who live there all the time. Right. And yeah, that's that's what makes it a great uh, one shot. And I also like that again. You include in in uh, appendix of uh, or a, I, I did I say that right? I can't. It, anyway, like uh, yeah, yeah, appendix. I also, I also have a reader's vocabulary. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Like you have a, a, a an appendix of like here are all the books I've read um, in when writing these one shots, um, as well as also like a lot of stuff about defining redlining and blockbusting. Yeah. Um, just to like, you know, which is helpful for people yeah. who are just coming in. Yeah. If you, if you play at Urbanomancer and they live in Detroit, you, you should know about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Probably like something you should know if like yeah. anything about American cities. Well, yes. Ev- everyone should know about it everywhere. Yeah. But I like, I know I didn't know about redlining until I'd moved to Boston in 2016. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, yeah, it should be part of if you're an American, like this should be part of your education, but uh, maybe yeah. it's not. <laughs> well, yeah, there might be a reason why yeah, it has not been part of your I education. I can't imagine why. I can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, surely no one could benefit from excluding this information from American history. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of learned about. I kind of learned about it as part of in in like undergrad and. Um, also i but like it's also been a thing that people have been talking about for like decades to where i remember reading um uh will eisner's a contract with god trilogy which is uh basically like it's the thing that made the graphic novel a thing like in terms of the the big lofty um and like he talked and like one of the uh the books in the contract with god trilogy is about like the history of a tenement neighborhood and they talk about like redlining and this is like in a book that's in, uh, you know, from like, I think like 19, like the 19, uh, published in 1978. So like, yeah. you know, this yeah. is, these are things that like people have, you know, if you live in yeah. a city and, you know, are tied to its history, you know about. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and like, that was one thing that was so interesting about reading, um, Detroit, I do mind dying, which is about the history of the the black labor movement in Detroit during the nineteen mm-hmm. late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. Is like, like people have known about this all along, and they just <laughs> yeah, it's not been that long historically speaking. Uh, but it's it really is like same shit, different day. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean? yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's it's. Uh, it was so interesting reading that book, and I'm like, oh, it's it's like all the same shit that we've been dealing with all along. And there's an mm-hmm. epilogue where they talk about like, oh, things have gotten worse in terms of equity since uh, we've since this uh, 
since this happened and that was written in the 1990s and things have since gotten worse since the 1990s yeah uh, in terms of equity and it's it's it whoa, it made me mad <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yep um <laughs> yeah uh, i will definitely yeah i have a good a, a nice set of books to check out um in the future but um the other thing that also motown features uh, motown showdown features to kind of shift from real world politics to just talking about unknown armies is that no it's fine like that's what makes this a great you know discussion episode uh and you know motown showdown also features a room of renunciation which i think is uh for me is like one of the more fascinating things of the unknown army setting but also one of the things that i feel like is the hardest to like introduce yeah um, especially in terms of like creating rooms of renunciation, which is like one thing that like is my kind of big like str- you know like writing task for unknown armies is trying to be able to come up with different rooms of renunciations. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was interesting because originally I just conceived of this as an other space, and then I had a moment where I was like, oh, and then you know they give the scion to the other space, and I'm like, oh no. Oh no, this is mm-hmm. a room of renunciation. <laughs> right. I, it doesn't make sense for it to be anything else. It's like the weirdest, most specific room of renunciation, which uh, for the listeners mm-hmm. at home is like a, a an other space that makes you completely change your outlook on something in a way that the room wants you to, and then turns yeah. you into an agent. So you make more people completely change their outlook on something in the way that the room wants you to. They're actually very terrifying. <laughs> yeah, they're they're very terrifying. They're also like a Again, because I think they're, like, really weird. Like, I think they're the kind of the thing that, like, it's... Again, Unknown Armies is so is such a big setting that, like, I think it's something that kind of is easy to overlook, even though I think it's, like, one of the more fascinating aspects of its uh, mythos. Yeah. Um, they say, like, was, in third edition, like, everyone talks about them, but no one's actually seen them. And that's kind of the place they hold in, like, the metafiction of the actual people who play Unknown Armies. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not inaccurate. Um, but yeah, like, I, I like that it's, um, also like this kind of, and it, like, it also works as kind of like another space, which is, you know, just like a, you know, a parallel universe kind of pocket reality, which I think are easier to come up with because they're, yeah. you know, it's just a pocket reality. And then also like the, the sky's the limit in terms of like what's in that pocket reality. And so like, but also like tying it to this kind of, uh, ghost of like what, you know, ghost of what Detroit can, you know, was and can be is like a very, you know, like that's certain, I mean, like it, it already is a, a city that has like a, a yeah. huge place in American mythology. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it holds a huge amount of space in our psyche. And so like on a way it's like, Oh, of course there would be a room that would just be about Detroit. The, mm-hmm. the most important place in America. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. Continue. But yeah, like it also, um, have you ever read, uh, NK Jameson's, uh, the city we become? I have not. Uh, okay. She, she also has a short story called, uh, the city made great, which is like kind of like a good, like urbana mancy short story. It's about more, it's, it's more about like, uh, people who become avatars for the cities because like, like and the psychic like astral plane cities are basically like great old one level kind of like psychic entities that like whenever they're like reborn causes them to like they have like a a psychic duel with like cthulhu basically incredible 
yeah it's it's a really good unknown armies like thing and and jk jameson basically wrote a whole novel that was about like uh that's about like new york kind of assembling to fight a cosmic battle against like nihilithotep basically um which i want to read but the short story is also really good and it's also like available for free on like tour.com oh yeah i'll definitely have to check it out then yeah it's a good story um but yeah like so like that like that as like an other space idea is like a very like that's definitely like a straightforward thing that you could basically put into kind of any kind of american city yeah. or really any kind of city anywhere because it's just a you know kind of ghostly potential of uh the city yeah yeah that's and that's an a concept i i really love um mm-hmm. that uh my gm worked a bit into the game we have which is set in boston and that was sort of in some ways what this other space that we accidentally oops all the demons uh represent yeah um but yeah it was also like fun turning this into a room because it sort of it asks people in the room to sort of take on this sort of opposing perspective on what a city should be, um, mm-hmm. which sort of mirrors like as someone who moved to the city from the countryside, there's sort of a conflict uh, of what the image of the ideal image of your city is that sort of uh, exists on the street level at all times mm-hmm. between all of the people who live in the city and, and who have a stake in its future. Uh, and it's really hard to sort of split out like what's right. It's it's fun to make a space that sort of reflects that these sort of competing psychological ideas of, of what something should be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also, I uh, like cities are also kind of hauntological in a sense of like, they're the remnants of the different like cities they could be are kind of scattered throughout them. So like, I know for yeah. me, like, especially in St. Louis and uh, as I kind of, I live in Iowa city right now, like there's a bunch of like small, like basically like unused light rail tracks that like run through the city all, all over the place that, you know, probably, you, you know, had like a streetcar, um, you know, light, light rail train, but like aren't being used for that anymore with like St. Louis being a perfect example where like, there's basically only like really well, there, there is like a bigger like subway, but it's, you know, like it's access is kind of limited and there's just like one, but there's tons of like abandoned like light rail tracks like yeah. all over the place. There's, there's a few of those in Boston. Even uh, I, I actually live near one. And if you go to the bus depot uh, at the end of the the bus depot line, you can see the old tracks like going into the bus depot. And like you just you really have this moment of regret where you're like, oh, imagine how good it would be if we still had streetcars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, and it is true that you sort of like the process of going through a city. There's different places that sort of reflect different visions. Like, you know, in Boston, the kind of place that um, the North End is is different from the kind of place that Roxbury is. Is different from the kind of place that Alston is. Is different from the kind of place that Seaport is. And like, Seaport is its own story where like this basically was bulldozed and turned into to someone else's vision. And like, it, uh, I love like cities are such hodgepodges of culture and ideas. And it's, it's interesting to sort of explore that, mm-hmm. um, especially with a city that has as much history as Detroit does, but really like any of you could do this anywhere in, in the sense that you can, you know, if you live in a city and you like unknown armies and you're thinking of running a game, like I really recommend like spending s- Considering consider running a game in your city because there's weird history there you don't know about. Oh yeah, uh, 
whether you've lived there a short time or a long time, there's weird history there. <laughs> yep, and like forgotten, like hauntologies, the futures that were haunted, you know, the the yeah. possible futures that were haunted by is a very unknown armies thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could resurrect that future if you uh, are willing to sacrifice for it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's great. Um, obviously, like I, I did have like a realization now. So I was kind of like reading through like the rooms stuff where I was like, oh, I guess like I could make like a room for every archetype since like they all do reserve reverse all the archetypes. But yeah, um, one of my ideas for like a one shot uh, that I, I wanted to tie a room into was uh, read. I was I like uh, was reading about like uh, people like kidnap like kidnapping family members from uh, cult compounds. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, because like you know, some people go to go to cult compounds, and their yeah. family doesn't want them there, so they like literally will try to kidnap them from it. And so, like, my idea was like, you're the person who you're is that like the family members are being used as cat's paws by a agent of renunciation who wants the the person so that they can then throw them into the room. Um, to, to reverse the yeah to reverse them, yeah to reverse a. a yeah, to reverse a uh, a kind of complicit, yeah, to to put them through a different kind of indoctrination process. Yes. Um, but good, actually, Ben. No. <laughs> maybe. Uh, nice. uh, it's complicated, like all things in an armies. Look, yeah. look. The great thing about an armies is it asks questions you don't have the answer to. Like, is this mm-hmm. ex- ethically acceptable? Um, good luck, players. This is your problem now. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, that's a great concept for yeah, the thanks. game. Uh, I would absolutely pick that up if you if you uh, put that out. Uh, there's so many directions you could go with that too. Like, mm-hmm. um, and it asks so many questions about what causes rooms of renunciations that you know maybe you have no interest in answering, which is fine. But uh, right, yeah. I mean, I kind of like the 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 first uh, status for book where like there, it's just like a source of randomness yeah. that like is it's it's the wild card. It's the universe's wild card. Um, as it just like constantly, you know, creates these, uh, you know, reverses people's like, I, you know, personalities and, uh, identities that like, you know, who, you know, whatever the effect of those is kind of like, you know, it's kind of incalculable because it could both be good or bad. Yeah. And it just depends on who it is. The great thing about them is like, they're, they're just sort of inherently scary. Um, Mm -hmm. Because of what they do, and then depending on who's writing one, they can then become even scarier. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's a great concept. You should definitely write. I need to write it. Um. But yeah. So I guess then. Um. I guess it's like all more or less everything about the the individual uh scenarios themselves. Um. I did want to kind of ask about like talking how did like the process of bringing in uh sensitivity readers. Um. Obviously, like, you know, you've kind of admitted that like you don't know every you know you there are gaps in your knowledge about like a place like Detroit, um, or about like you know the scenario runoff. So like, could you describe kind of how you go went uh, went about kind of getting a sensitivity reader and like you know who to how do you pick them and like you know what what are what are they kind of like what are their what's the process of it? So in my case, um, because like this because my starting budget, I like I didn't have any money in the bank mm-hmm. <laughs> necessarily to do this. Uh, I'm very lucky in that I have friends whose marginalization sort of aligns with 
some of the the characters in these stories uh, who are also fans of Unknown Armies, who I also trusted to be honest with me. Um, and so, like, I approach them and I'm like, hey, like, I'll happily pay you for your time. Um, and, uh, like, this is sort of this idea I was thinking of using, like, are you willing to, you know, spend the time and, and um, look at this and, and give me honest feedback? And, and, and they said yes. And, like, I, I'm, I feel so fortunate to, like, know people who were willing and able to do that um Mm -hmm. but like it's in my case like luck is definitely an element (laughs) um i just happen to know micah and like he has um experience you know being non-binary in um in a rural area um and i Mm -hmm. sort of wanted runoff to incorporate the experiences of these people i knew growing up and i i asked him if he would sort of come up you know come on this journey with me basically um one of the things i use as sort of a litmus test for, you know, if I feel I need a sensitivity reader is like, is the game about this basically? Mm-hmm. So like, um, in the case of runoff, like Alexis's being non-binary is not just sort of like, you know, a, a facet of their character backstory. Like it's a major element of the plot potentially. Yeah. Um, and to me, like that's sort of like when you need to bring on someone, uh, and mm-hmm. like, and in the case of Motown showdown, like, the experience of being black and marginalized is in a city like that's part of the core of the game like i mm-hmm. can't just i can't rely on pure book knowledge like i need to have right. someone who who's experienced that um so like that's definitely part of the process and like part of like my ideal process was that the person would also be familiar with the kind of stories that unknown armies is trying to tell and be able to sort of gauge them on that basis Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if you're out there in the universe and you aren't fortunate enough to have friends who are willing to come on this journey with you, who already like this sort of thing, um, Salt and Sage on Twitter, I believe is the, what they're called. Um, they help people find sensitivity readers. And if I had a project where I was not like, I, I, I picked these games partly because I knew people would be interested and willing to help me do this. Um, there are other games that I might write in the future, depending on um, how things go. I think I'm messing up this name and I'm going to try and find it for you. So I apologize. Um, where I would, I would just, you know, I'd hire someone from, from them or from another sensitivity group because I, I don't happen to know someone who I trust to, to do that and be honest with me. Oh, sure. I'm so sorry. I wish I had, just um i wish i had had this before I came no i mean like well it's fine like because this is just like an interview you know <laughs> like the, the, this is the the journey we're on and and yeah. kind of discussing this stuff um yeah so i guess uh my other my next question then is like uh so like atlas games like i guess like mo- the most i guess like the vast majority of the most recent um on an army's content has been through the statusphere community portal where it's all uh you know the fan you know unknown armies fans writing their own supplements um and then putting them up on drive through uh and you know possibly getting a cut uh so like what is your experience with like using the statusphere and making content for it and possibly getting paid for it because i know like there's also some horror stories about uh i know certainly like uh, what the most po- world's most popular role playing game has uh, somewhat of a uh, predatory 
uh, community um, content platform. Yeah. So, you know, uh, obviously I, I don't want to burn bridges or whatever. So, you know, uh, take, take this as information and not advice, gentle, re- gentle listener. Um, but basically um, they give you a template. Um, I actually, because I use affinity and not InDesign, uh, and because the word template I found uh, really difficult to use, um, I actually basically took the InDesign template and imported it into Infinity, Affinity Designer and like kind of had to not completely redo it, but definitely had to tweak it a lot to make it work for me. Um, and then for one thing I will say is really nice about working in Statosphere is because Unknown Armies uses stock photography instead of um, like drawings like i'm able to go to like pexels or pixabay and just get like tons of stock photography uh there's people doing amazing work on those sites and it's it's free with credit so that's really good um as a point of information like atlas does take a 50 percent cut um of what you write which Mm -hmm. for example if you want to write in uh like a a system like troika or like morkborg like a lot of the osr games like you don't have to worry about that like they're just like, yeah, just take it, do whatever you want. Um, and, like, that's really fantastic. You kind of can't beat that deal. Um, yeah. In my case, like, this is the game I want to write for. And, like, uh, while you can't copyright mechanics, like, a lot of what I like about Unknown Armies is its lore. So, like, I can't just, mm-hmm. you know, kind of file off the serial numbers and, and say, oh, yeah, this is just, you know, influenced by it. Like, the, like these games only work in Unknown Armies. Um, right. So, like, I'm sort of willing to accept that as the cost of doing business like it's either that or just publish stuff for free um and like the motivation in publishing the one shots was honestly like a lot of it's just i want more people to play this game because i really like it (laughs) Mm -hmm. so like it's not really profit motivated uh i just also know that like a lot of creators feel really strongly that um you know i I, it just take me hours and some amount of money to do this and so i i do feel you know that compensation is ethical but also like if you do a bunch of work and you don't charge for it it can you know some creators feel that depresses the the amount that they're able to charge so like that was also part of the motivation sure yeah that's like my experience like it's pretty hands-off um i'm sort of curious like as someone who can really only write scenario and not design mechanics like how people who publish who actually get like physical printed scenarios published like how easy it is to do that um mm-hmm. i just sort of did it using the statosphere uh creator template but like that was my experience um for what i'm doing i think it's fine um i think there are other people for who that might not be fine um right to accomplish yeah i mean like i think uh i think the thing with like pre-published one you know canned one shots is that usually they're they're written by people who are you know, on staff at the, at the, the publisher, or they're like kind of, you know, they're actually, they're fairly credentialed in some way. So like, um, I know we talk about, uh, I know like, uh, Caleb Stokes, who it, were at, at Tectif, we're big fans of, he's the writer of red markets. He's also, oh, yeah. uh, done a lot of stuff with Delta green. Um, it is now writing a lot of their content. And part of that is because he's written a lot of, he's written and recorded a lot of, uh, good Delta green actual plays. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, like he was able to, he, you know, he was able to like kind of use that to get, get there. But like, that's also like, you know, you need to have that content out and 
um, you know, needs to be in a place where like people can like, you know, get be wowed by it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I won't lie that like, you know, if, if these do well and if I, you know, publish another couple and, and they do well, it would be great if, you know, I was approached by, um, approached by Atlas, but like, I, I'm not the, the publisher. Like I don't have, mm-hmm. I'm still kind of in the infancy of, of trying this out. Um, yeah, sure. I, I will say that like for someone who is at this, at like very, basically the very first steps of like trying to publish scenario content, like I'm pretty proud of like how, like it has problems, but I'm pretty proud of how, polished uh the anthology is um mm-hmm. yeah it's like, an excellent it's an excellent set yeah i really i really it was important to me that it was polished um because like i wanted someone to feel comfortable picking it up and feel comfortable that it would that they would work like it feels bad to um to pick up an anthology or a scenario and then like you as soon as it hits table like it just it dissolves <laughs> mm-hmm. like it doesn't work so yeah or it just um, stays on someone's shelf and they never yeah they never yeah. play it yeah so that was kind of important to me um in a way maybe it wouldn't be if you know i just was like yeah here's some cool ideas i have like mm-hmm. crazy uh which is to be clear like a totally valid way to approach writing on statusphere um yeah it, it's just it, what I wanted to do was to make something like really, for lack of a better word, idiot proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, I have, uh, I guess like a couple of, a couple more questions. Um, one of which is, uh, something that I've kind of thought a little bit about, especially since the, uh, one shot collection is, uh, titled American dreams, which is that unknown armies, I think in, at least in my my sense of it and my reading of it is, is that unknown armies is a game that's very much tied into like, uh, I'm going to say the American American psychosis is the thing that I, I wrote down in my notes, which, uh, it's probably fairly accurate to where like, I actually think it might be, I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's like a very, it might be kind of cha- like, you know, you need a, I think it like might be kind of difficult to, uh, adapt to like different places. Obviously like at least is difficult for me because I'm, I am an American and you know, I'm not part of cultures that I am not part of. Um, So I don't know the way, you know, the, the nuances to like be able to kind of uh, fit unknown armies into the, into those kind of spaces. So um, I don't know. Do you, uh, do you have feel that same kind of, do you feel that same way about unknown armies or um, do you think Um, that like, again, it's, it's possible to just like get over it once if, if you read through it and do some reading. I used to feel that way that it was sort of this inherently um this inherently American kind of world. Um and I think you know definitely it's informed by its biases especially when you think about like what what is chosen to be an avatar school and even more so I think what is chosen to be an adept school. Although I guess mm-hmm. it doesn't matter as much for adept because it can change from culture to culture. Like yeah. I used to think like you couldn't set this game in any other country. Um I don't feel that way as much anymore. Um, I don't know if that's because of the time. I think it's, I think it is because I've spent more time thinking about unknown armies in -hmm. other countries. And so like part of it is, um, my friend Jason Johns who helped me write, um, Firestarter talked a lot about, uh, like Russia, for example, um, is a country where there's like a big disconnect between, um, because of like how their media apparatus works between like how, 
the world is perceived sometimes and how the world is, which like, to be clear, I think that's very true of America as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like singling this out as like a distinctly Russian phenomenon. Uh, and there's a book about it that I can try to find in, in a minute, but not in the middle of this interview. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I also studied Japanese for five years and I've unfortunately ever been to Japan. So like, I guess I'm just going to say for this whole section where I talk about unknown armies in other countries, like a big, a big sign just saying, understand, I am an American, and, like, this is based on what I have read. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you should take everything I'm saying with, like, a lot of skepticism and a lot of understanding that, like, my perspective on does unknown armies fit other countries is the perspective of an American looking at other other countries as a, as a foreigner to those countries. So, like, just, that's a big disclaimer I want to put here as I'm discussing mm -hmm. this in this interview. But, with that said, um, I think reading some of David Tormson's Blatt's first atmosphere sort of changed my perspective a bit. Um, he, he lives in Taiwan and, uh, oh, yeah. his, his I've seen are, are informed by those. Um, and like reading, I read a lot of, um, manga and anime and I, I sort of, um, pay attention to, to Japanese news sources. Uh, Unseen Japan is really good if that's something that interests you. Mm -hmm. um, we talk a lot about like, uh, Japanese cultural context um that we don't talk about in america uh asian boss is another is a youtube channel that's really interesting if you want to kind of look at that stuff mm -hmm. uh i think if as you spend more time in a place you sort of begin to see the weird occult paradoxes and beliefs and uh postmodern uh stew of that particular culture and in like japan mm -hmm. like I like I actually had a concept for an unknown army's one shot in Japan, but in order to write it, I will like you know as I said, part of what informed the ones on on my list of one shots I decided to write was do I have someone who can sensitivity read this already, or do I need to hire someone? So this is a this is a scenario I would have to hire someone for. But sure. like one I considered writing is um, David Tormson has uh, a school about the idea of um, losing. Uh, face, which is a bit more of uh, a Chinese concept from what I understand that is in Japan, where they talk more about hon and uh, tatamai, which is like sort of your true self versus the, the appearance you give to everyone else. Uh, and it sort of sort of rattled around in my brain that and like how much um, bullying narratives from Japan like kind of resonate with me as someone who has a history there uh, and like sort of the phenomenon of celebrity culture uh, and how strongly that exists in Japan. And in many ways, the way that celebrity culture exists in America today was sort of prefigured by Japan and, and Korea. Uh, I sort of had this concept for a game where you play these um, these high school students who decide to metaphysically replace um, like, a, like an idol or perhaps like a K-drama celebrity um, who has objectionable views with like a fictional character. Um, using mm -hmm. a ritual, um, yeah. so like that's sort of like an idea I had for for a one shot that that would sort of exist in another country, um, or like I had another idea for one in Canada, which admittedly is a bit more American adjacent, uh, for like um that takes place in Nova Scotia about um the Blue Nose, which is like a a boat in Nova Scotia that's acquired sort of this mythic status, uh, and like sort of trying to recreate it metaphysically. 
uh, despite it being um, relocated to like some rich person's house in Florida. So like, I think that a lot of it of whites unknown army seems distinctly American is, is just because we are so thick in it. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, there was another idea I had a friend of mine ran this in ESO terrorists, but I think you could do it in unknown armies really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this goat in Sweden um uh the the yule goat uh and every year people keep trying to burn it uh and for oh, yeah. many years um they could not keep it together uh and then it it's it sort of started it's they finally managed to keep people from burning it it was like right around 2016 <laughs> so like <laughs> In this esoteric game, which uh, which would work very well in unknown armies, I think is like sort of this: the goat has to burn, or things get worse. Right. Um, and like that's like distinctly Swedish. Like that, nothing like that exists. Well, something like it exists here, I assume. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so like I, I think you just sort of need to to look at the things about the place you live or you want to set your game in that are weird and like couldn't happen anywhere else. And you can sort of build unknown armies around it. And like Midsummer is a a movie. A lot of people say is unknown armies inspiration. And that takes, that also takes place in like Scandinavia. Mm. Sure. Um, So yeah, that's, that's kind of my perspective on it um, with all the disclaimers and and caveats in place. But uh, I think anywhere you have a disconnect between uh how people construct their lives and reality and the reality as it exists like there's there's the kind of um context that exists for a good unknown armies game mm-hmm. yeah i think i would i think i'd agree with that as well i think that there's also like you know not to be over i, I think there are things that are fairly universal universal of about like the human experience that also especially now as as the contradictions become more apparent and everything that uh, like those kinds of uh, th- those kinds of uh, social and psych- psychic frictions uh, become more apparent or like when you're more aware of them, I think like it's, you know, at that point you can put your own, you know, do an unknown armies thing with it. Yeah. Um, There's also yeah. It's just like, you got to read it. <laughs> Yeah, about China that talks about this that I shared in the Unknown Armies fan club on Facebook like a while ago that I could mm-hmm. pick up. But uh, it, it, I don't know enough about Chinese culture to to comment on it, but it's really good and it, it's very good Unknown Armies inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. All right. So I guess that uh, leads me into my uh, my last question, which is like, uh, yeah, what are the uh, future plans for plans for future supplements in unknown armies or for other RPGs. I know you kind of mentioned um, some OSR stuff. If you also have some uh, OSR stuff writings too, that um, like I people might check out yet, but uh, so right now I'm going to write at least one more unknown armies, one shot for a game jam that I'm co-running called yo jambo, where you write mm-hmm. um, scenario content based on uh, Kurosawa's uh, yo jambo. Yeah. <laughs> one of my and favorite movies. It's an incredible love that movie. movie. I love it. I only movie. recently got around to watching it and I'm like I, and I've seen both it and um Festival Oh, of Fist, yeah. I uh, that is a movie I can better. Yeah, I agree. I think the other thing about you Jumbo is that that's like a movie I can like rewatch over and over again not get tired of it all. Yeah. Uh, which is for me a good a sign that I like really love a movie. Um but yeah, like Also like Mayfune, like what a what oh, a yeah. talent! <laughs> oh yeah, like it, an iconic actor. Yeah, ah, uh, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, that game is going to be about um, a uh, four. Uh, sorry, I, I don't have like a pre-written like summary of this, so it's it's still sort of no, yeah, sure. metastizing in my brain. But basically, um, four uh, checkers, like you know, a cabal of four people come into uh, a town where a uh, visionary artist statuary garden exists, um, and they have to stop the rampant demon possession that is happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of about the motivations of the people entangled that, uh, and also just involves, you know, players getting to to exercise a lot of demons, because it's a, uh, there's a, one player can see uh, whether someone's possessed, uh, one player can expel demons uh, using gormaturgy. They can literally make them throw them up. Uh, mm. One player can um, see the demon once they are no longer in the person. And then the last character is a fulmaturge who can shoot the demon. <laughs> so, like the players <laughs> sort of have to work together in order to nice. expel the demons. It's it's going to get wrapped up in like all this history about the visionary art movement, uh, specifically mm-hmm. the based on the garden of Eden, which is like this weird concrete statuary garden, um, made by this real weirdo and Freemason, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Samuel P. Dinsmore. Very well worth the Google. Oh, but, yeah. Um, as you can probably tell from my scatterbrained description of it, it's, it's still <laughs> kind of coming together at this point. Sure. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, and then, uh, Kind of OSR, I'm probably going to write a campaign splat book for Ryutama. Oh, nice. A Japanese pastoral fantasy game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is about um, the players have to deliver letters to people who have been ostracized from their cities for uh, various plot-related reasons having to do Mm -hmm. with the health of these sort of... city dragons that sort of maintain the health of the city and, and uh, who are failing. Uh, and the only way to deal with that is to eject people from the city. And so it's sort of like a uh, kind of in the mold of Violet Evergarden and Natsume Jinsho and, you know, of course, mm-hmm. Delivery Service and other Ghibli movies where the characters yeah. are sort of itinerant, but like rather than, you know, getting treasure, they sort of have to deal with these simmering interpersonal conflicts that have occurred mm-hmm. because of... Uh, this this thing that has to happen. So that's kind of like what's in my right. future. I have no idea when those things... Well, Yojambo ends in the end of June, so hopefully that will be coming out mm-hmm. in the year at least, and I have no idea when I'm going to start the Ryutama one. I've run some of it in real life, but I haven't started writing the actual mm-hmm. splat. Alright, wow, that sounds that sounds super interesting. I uh, will be looking forward uh, to all, all these right. things. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, do you have anything else you want to plug? Uh, I guess this is more or less everything that I wanted to uh, talk about. So. Uh, yeah, if you uh, if you write games or you're interested in trying to write games, uh, check out Yojambo on uh, itch.io. Um, we're writing scenarios in the month of June to try and get people to try games that aren't D&D. So if that's something that sounds fun to you, uh, come join us. Uh, that's kind of my big thing to plug. Okay. Uh, nice. So I uh, I really, I thought this was a great interview. I, uh, I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed talking myself. to you, Katie. Thank you. Um, I'm impressed that you read all of these one shots. Yes, cool. I, I, I did. I did prepare. Well, I had like a week to re- prepare so I could like read one a day. Um, and yeah, like yeah, thanks. Um, this was a great interview, and I hope you all enjoyed uh, this interview to you listeners. So, um, 
Yeah, like I'm Ben. Um, this is Kay Cargo, uh, author of American Dreams, uh, One Shots for Unknown Armies, and Status Fear. Get it on Drive Through RPG. It's a great, great collection of one shots. Uh, especially helpful because Unknown Armies is a weird game, and having dice one shots kind of helps solidify like what kind of games you can play in it. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. Bye, internet. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great one, internet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>